Welcome to It Could Be Said. My name is All Calling, and I am really fucking hungover today. So luckily, we are joined by two people who might get a word in edgeways over me and the screams of my head and liver. I am, as always, joined by Dr. Luke. Made up, how are you, Luke? Much better than you, by the sounds of it, well. And I am also joined by Simon Alvey. How are you, Simon? I am. I'm also not hungover, so that's a good start. But politics has given you the nausea about the sweet, sweet sense of alcohol beforehand. Oh, oh God, that is, that, is, that, is, that is a lovely link. So, <laughs> yes. yes, yes. <laughs> so, we have a fair amount, actually, because it's been, what, just, just a bit over a week since. So, we've got the two manifesto to, to talk about in depth that we kind of touched on in the last show. We also have a toy manifesto, which we are going to go into with a fine tooth comb to see if we can actually find a policy. Um, then we've got some the, the various debates that I haven't watched um, to talk about. And then we will finish with the, the infamous you girls uh, seat projection. But let's start with the manifestos. The Lib Dems went up first. What's the big takeaway of their manifesto, Simon? Well, I think the Lib Dem manifesto, the thing that we we're going to, obviously, let's be honest, it's stop Brexit. Have you considered that we don't like Brexit? Brexit is bad. I mean, that, that in the end is what the Lib Dems are going to say a lot for a very long time. And, you know, in a similar way to the Conservatives, every time you ask them a question and they're, they're like, hey, do you know what, do you know what, it, 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 it will be, will, is the answer to this problem? It's getting Brexit done. Um, theirs is, hey, have you considered that the answer to this problem is stopping Brexit. But I think that the thing that you primarily take away from it is this is the closest to a sort of steady as she goes, relatively normal kind of, you know, if we end up with either a Conservative or a Labour majority government, this is going to be profound economic change. Whereas the Le Dems is much closer to, you know, basically our economic model is broadly correct. And here's some stuff we want to do about planting trees which appears to be the 2019 equivalent of the sort of obsession everyone had at the start of the decade with we're not closing as many libraries as you think we are. You know, it's the thing that everyone seems to agree we need to do. Um, so the Lib Dems in general terms have got what I would call a really sort of standard Lib Dem manifesto with Joe Swinson's face and a promise to have a referendum slash revoke Brexit, depending on... Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that, that's, the, that's the interesting thing because they seem to have rode back really hard on we're going to revoke Article 50 on day one to going back to we're going to have another referendum. And I think there, there, there are two things at play here. One is, and we've talked about this before, so I'm not going to spend much time on it, it's a bit of a silly promise because the Lib Dems won't get into office. But what I think is more interesting is, if you've read, I'd like, one of the one of the one of the things I've been making a habit of in this election, one of the things I found most interesting is reading the responses from the various um, focus groups that Lord Ashcroft's organisation have been doing. And one of the interesting things that came out of that was that people support this. Even people that don't like Brexit think the idea of revoking Article Fifty without another referendum is too extreme. See, so this is what I find interesting because, like, I personally think the Lib Dems' position is far more intellectually coherent than a second referendum. The ref- first of all, the referendum was run on the basis that this was one or done that Brexit would happen. Um, none of what the Remain campaign said makes sense if it was the no the first stop. 
first part of a, of a two referendum stage. If you'd had a two referendum process, it's you know, it's perfectly logical to do. If you'd started off with that, you'd have had leave with like a 58, 59, 60% uh, win in total because they'd have been able to go to the people and say, well, if we can't get a good deal, you can just vote to stay in um, into two years later. So I think it's intellectually dishonest to go to a second referendum. I think if you're a party campaigning for a second referendum, as a Remain party, you then have the inevitable question of, well, what happens if you lose this referendum? Will you ask for a third? And it, it makes more sense to cut that out and say, no, we just want to revoke it. There is an election, there is a democratic event going on as we speak. So, like, if, if the Lib Dems got a majority, why do we need another referendum? They've been elected on a mandate to get to not do Brexit. So, to me, it made perfect sense the second referendum it is intellectually dishonest. It's just a, it's just a way to disguise the fact that Remainers are bitching and moaning because they lost and want to take their ball home and play the game again. But actually, that's quite important to Remainers. <laughs> like they don't want to accept the result, but they don't want to be seen as a type of people who don't accept the result. And so the second referendum is kind of their safe space. Where they can pretend they're a Democrat, rather, rather like rather than the petulant child they are. Oh, that's flamethrower language. <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. And I don't think the position is that well thought through, to be honest. <laughs> I think it's just. Like, <laughs> oh, I'm the flamethrower, and Luke turns around and says, "You know what? I don't re- remain as I've thought it through as well as a petulant child." No, I just I just find it interesting that the idea of you just I agree with you, but I find it interesting that the idea of revoking Article Fifty is seen as somehow being more extreme. What do you think, Simon? Well, I I think it felt the revoking Article Fifty thing felt sort of exciting for about ten minutes, and then but the reality of it is that. It does, I mean, your position on whether or not it's intellectually consistent or whatever, I mean, it is basically, they are the only party who are properly going that we really believe parliamentary democracy is the key thing. Um, you know, that's what this is, that's what that actually says. It says we venerate parliamentary democracy over uh, referendum democracy. The irony of that being the Liberal Democrat position, considering where they were 15 years ago, is one that is, you know, worth considering. But it is absolutely clear that in general terms, people feel that that referendum result has a higher standard of democracy than parliamentary voting. Now, you know, I imagine part of the reason for that is there are lots and lots of people who have voted their entire lives and never really seen it for parliamentary elections and never really seen it as a genuinely useful process. This is the man who currently will be voting in the safe Labour seat of barking this this, this election. Um, but I think that's and that's part of, part of what it is. I think a lot of people looked at this referendum as the first time they voted and actually saw that the thing, you know, actually understood that their vote really counted for something. You know, if you're a Labour voter in a safe Conservative seat, a Conservative in a safe Labour seat, a, you know, Liberal Democrat pretty much anywhere, you know, you're the, you know you're, the feeling often is you tramp down to the polling station in the rain or the wet or whatever, um, and, you know, you do your civic duty and then you discover that, you know, once again... Um, your vote really has been, you know, wasted. And I, I think that is part of the reason that the referendum is seen as a necessary thing, because, 
because of the lack of legitimacy offered to general election the voters. Until the last census, that, that was a very beautiful uh, explanation about why a second referendum isn't needed and we should just follow through on the first one. No, I, 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 I think that I think that's, but it's also an argument for why there is a sense that if your if your policy basically is we think Brexit is a terribly bad idea and we shouldn't do it, you are going to have to advocate for that second referendum. Now, you know, let me let me be sort of look. I am a Remainer. I voted Remain. I still believe leaving the European Union is basically bad on almost all levels. But actually, it, you know, I don't know whether a second referendum is the best possible outcome because of everything that you've said. My problem at the moment is the version of Brexit that we've chosen is one that I think is incredibly, will be incredibly economically damaging. To me, the best solution would have been to find a moderate Brexit, which, you know, what I would call the Michael Collins solution, not <laughs> getting shot in a row in court, but, you know, having something that gets you out of political structures, but doesn't wholly bre- doesn't break all of the links. Yes. And that, I think, is... Um, is part that is that to me is my solution and if you're not going to have that um then you have to ask yourself you know then people are going to try and find solutions and trying to stop this well i think i think it's it's difficult to know which way the causation is is it but one of the things i think you we are basically came to a point of is it's not it's not it's not a second referendum it's a double or quits referendum and i used to say that in like a pejorative sense um kind of like the you know, the more succinct version of the rant I just said earlier. But it is double or quits, because obviously the whole point of double or quits is, is that to escape your first loss, you double yeah. your bet. And so if Remainers, immediately after uh, the, the referendum, had basically gone to Theresa May and said, look, we will vote for anything you put in front of us, if it keeps in the customs union, if it keeps us in the, in the single market for goods, if it keeps us highly aligned um, as possible on services, we you know we we've got two hundred votes, two hundred and fifty votes ready to go on the opposition benches. You just need to do the deal. They would have pro- we would probably have left yeah. with a with a with a soft a form of soft Brexit. You know, either Norway either Norway minus or or Jersey Jersey plus. But instead. You did have this campaign to try and reverse Brexit. And so if the, the Tories lose this election, if we get the second referendum, if that second referendum is Remain, okay, that, that, that worked. You played for high stakes, Remain has won. But if they lose, lose this election, something happens we don't get a second referendum, and the Tories lose, they, they, they lose the second referendum, then actually the path is paved. The Tories have a much harder Brexit than seemed plausible in 2016. Yep. No, I, I completely agree with that. I, yeah, I think if, if we... It does, you know, if you're, a, if you're someone who broadly wants to see Britain at least aligned to the European Union, it does it, it, it's, that, it's that old joke of how would, you get, how would you get there? Well, I wouldn't start from here. You know, that we're now at the point where, yes, the Brexit deal that is on the table, because that's, you know, Boris Johnson's deal is on the table, is an incredibly, is a very, is a very hard form of Brexit. And, you know, we, and the Remain campaign threw away an opportunity to actually get something that would, you know, would at least keep us inside the European orbit of influence. 
Yes, what do you think? The, the more, the more I, the more I think about this, and um, you, you, you mentioned this to me ages ago, offline, well, and I think you're probably right. The more I think about it, the, the better way to have done this, the better way to have done this whole process is to have had the referendum at the end rather than yeah. at the beginning. So. I mean, it would, the problem is it would have needed a leader other than David Cameron to have taken the Tories into the 2015 election. But the better way of doing this was, if we win a majority in Parliament, we will trigger Article 50, we will negotiate a deal to leave the European Union, and then there will be a referendum on that deal at the end. I now, think, now, to be fair... I was looking more in principle at referendums, particularly about Scottish independence. The one thing you have to remember is that at that point, we didn't know, because there, there was no case law, that as a member state, Article 50, you know, we had the right to unilaterally revoke Article 50. So, at the, Oh, yeah, this is, this is the benefit of all kinds of hindsight. Yeah. But anyway, getting back to the, the issue at hand, I've got a question for both of you. Go on. Without looking... Can you name a single policy in the Lib Dem manifesto other than legalising dope? It's um, not related to Brexit. I can because I looked before we saw the podcast. So they've brought back the pe- the increase in income tax by a penny, uh, this time I think to fund the NHS. Um, it usually is. Um, they, they also have a policy that I'm, well, I'm not a big believer on now because William is too old, but they're extending free childcare to uh, any child that is over six months old, that's a great policy. Like, if pe- people without children do not realise how ruinously expensive childcare is. Mm. Um, and for all, I can't remember what economic law is, but because it's so people-intensive, as automation makes other tasks cheaper, childcare gets more expensive as a proportion of your income because there, there just isn't a way to get the same cost savings. Um so yeah, that's a good policy. But as I said, I don't care now because William's almost of age to go to school. I'm all right, Joe. Pull up the ladder. <laughs> no, if they if they insist on passing the policy, just just give us uh, just give the parents of four year olds a rebate of the eighteen months through childcare we missed out on. Oh, this is like labour and uh, <laughs> the waspy women. Yeah, I was owed that money. All la- the waspy women, which I, I'm going to I'm going to have a shout about later. Oh, I'm looking forward um, to that. Okay, well. Actually, have a shout about it now because this is a good way of throwing to the Labour manifesto. Myself and Will already talked about this a bit last week, so you lead us off, sir. If you're going to spend fifty-eight billion pounds essentially compensating people for not reading the news, that's a very stupid way of spending your money. You know, we are giving. You know, this is partly this is actually an argument against sort of universal benefits. I mean, you know. The, the big thing, the big takeout of it is that one of the people who will get more than £20,000 is Theresa May, who, you know, I imagine she's probably bought quite a lot of, you know, mood-enhancing candles since she left office, <laughs> but on the same level, she's probably fine. Um, you know, it is, a, it is an extremely expensive policy to basically, once again, provide quite a significant bung to an extremely small proportion of the population, who most of whom are okay anyway. Obviously, people who are going to be pushed into a position of poverty or um, have issues with that are, need to be compensated, and there may be an argument for means testing at the bottom, but to sound like Norman Tebbit, which no one is expecting, these people can just get on their bikes and look for work. See, this is, this is the thing, like, I, I don't understand the logic of this, 
Um, we all believe in gender equality. Women live longer. Yeah. D- d- it never made any sense for there to be a, a younger uh, pension age uh, for women. And, and actually, also, women tend to take more career breaks. So to kind of the, 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 the elements of um, the pension system that is still based on the contributing principle, women often get lower pensions because they have fewer working years because they take time out for child uh, for child rearing. Um, well, let's call let's call a spade a shovel. Well, hang on, let me let me just let me, so like I don't understand why women need to be compensated for being allowed to continue working after the point of sixty. Like it was a great round. And women had been expecting to be able to work until 65, and the government brought a new law in where there's like, no, you're expected to retire at 60. And they're like, but I was planning all my finances around those extra five years. I can see why that would involve giving them compensation. But if they've had like over 20 years notice that the, 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 to be, to be fair parent to the, to these people, it is only like eight years' notice, but also significantly... No, no, that's not, know, that's, oh. not, that's not true. The fact that the age was going to be equalised, is it was something that was done in yeah. the 90s. The I coalition thought, government yeah, yeah, yeah. just sped it up. But the fact that equalisation was coming was known for quite some time. Um, yes. I find it genuinely... And I'm sort of like, personally, I think we should be trying to aim for an earlier retirement age, as we become more prosperous. Um, but there's no argument for an unequal pension age. It was sexist nonsense when it was first done. It's sexist nonsense now. The idea that you can that the government would, was ever in danger of losing a court case about changing the law of a benefit is absurd. If Labour want to do this, boom, it should be in their manifesto and it should be costed properly. Yeah, yeah, let's, let's call, hang on, let's, let's just call a spade a shot. The reason, this wasn't in the Labour manifesto. So the logic of this policy is really quite simple. Our manifesto didn't land the way we wanted it to. Um, and our polling suggests we're struggling with women over 65. What do, what do older women want? I know. Because... It was quite clear, we'll talk about the, the interviews in a bit, but it was quite clear from that Andrew Neil interview that Jeremy Corbyn has not the first clue how to pay for this. Not not, not in the slightest, I, I agree. And also, like, well, firstly, I don't, entire, I don't actually understand it. I presume it's not women over 65. It must be women between about... 50 yeah okay yeah but but i think that's the like that it's not even a good electoral bung if you're going to have an electoral bung because you've got problems with women over 65 just raise the state pension for women you know you can do you know and then um, i'm making a a policy on the hoof but hey i and and i haven't even joined the shadow cabinet yet but like give it time you know if you're going um, and believe me i do a significantly better job than richard bergen at least but like it, it seems to me it's a really strange policy from a bung perspective because it's focused on such a narrow group of people. And there's this, this language of, of stealing and of theft, which you've heard from Angela Rayney, you've heard from Rebecca Long-Bailey, you've heard from the aforementioned Richard Bergen. You know, there is this assumption now that somehow just having to work a bit longer than you might have expected is, is, is stealing. I mean, first and foremost... 
as someone who um, has had to pay tuition fees, lived through one of the longest economic downturns, uh, graduated into the great deepest debt since the Depression, and has had to live through an economic downturn for the last nine years, um, I'll be honest, my sympathy is limited. Um, but you know, that's not, you know, a change in government policy is not theft. It's a, it's a change of priorities, and it was a good change of priorities, both because of equalisation, but also because, you know, you're, it's a... It, Pensions are really expensive, and actually, we do need to seriously, you know, look at where the at where the money needs to go. And this was a good policy. See, actually, this is um, we we won't get into it now, like, but my um, this is one of my weird, wacky left wing beliefs because I personally would aim for to lower the pension age. I think the pension age was deliberately set when we were we were much poorer than we are now at a level that was thought uh, plausible, feasible. We're much richer now. Um, logic would say that as a richer country, we could afford a more generous welfare state. Um, I think there's also some interesting stuff in America with how their social security works, that people in working class occupations often take the opportunity to take their pension early in return for having smaller annual checks. So I think there's, I, I personally think there's a good argument to lower the, reten- uh, the retirement age. I just think the, the government sets the retirement age you get what you're given, there's no legal recourse, and whatever age it should be, it is, it should be equal between agendas. Um, the, 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 one, the, one, the one issue I will point out that I think does lurk in the background here, and, and Labour's policy doesn't, um, isn't targeted to address this, is that because, because women do still perform the vast majority of sort of uh, childcare and increasingly care for the elderly as well. There is an issue with people that have been carers getting their full, getting their full, na- getting all their national in- insurance stamps. And I do think um, the system around carers allowance needs to change to make it easier and fairer to get that full national, to get your full national insurance contributions. But I think the point is. We just sat here for five minutes and devised better policy than what the Labour Party has come up with. <laughs> well, we, we did, to be fair, we did spend three minutes more. <laughs> we want to actually talk about, uh, talk about what was in the Labour manifesto as opposed to what wasn't in it. Well, do we? Uh, do we, do, do we, Luke? You asked the question. Do we want to talk about well, what was in the Labour manifesto? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the... There is a there is a graph doing the rounds that shows the percentage of GDP spent, uh, you know, by European nations and the UK is sort of fairly low down that league table, and then Labour's manifesto moves us somewhere towards the middle. Mm. I think the problem that graph doesn't address it. I have no issue with I have issue with what they're spending some of that money on, but I have no issue, actually as a Conservative, but, you know, I'm a Berkey and I'm not a Thatcherite, never have been. Um, I have no issue with a large estate. What I do have an issue with is the fantasy that you can afford all of that based on only taxing people who earn over £80,000 and taxing um, people more who earn over £80,000 a year. And, the, the issue I can see could the issue, should this manifesto ever be implemented the issue I can see coming down the road 
is that you would very quickly get to a situation and you've made this comparison offline well and I think you're absolutely right um, is that you would get you get the same situation that Francois Mitterrand got in France when he tried to do something similar excuse me in the early 1980s where you were just faced with a bomb strike yeah because I mean my, my point is basically look you can increase you can have high Confis- uh, confiscatory uh, levels of taxation to solve inequality. You can have high government borrowing. Um, you can have radical take take over of aspects of the uh, public realm. But if you try and do all three at the same time, you're gonna freak people out, and that's what Labour's basically proposing to do. I I'd be more comfortable if they were just like, we're just gonna borrow this money. Uh, we, we're entering a recession, there's a bit of a downturn, we're going to borrow the money and we're going to stimulate economic activity, then the long run this will pay for itself. It's not true, but then again, pretending that you, you will get £80 billion in new revenue from these tax rises is also not true. So just be honest and whack it on the credit card. I think the other really interesting thing actually, I don't know if you guys have picked up on this, the, the, the talking point that this won't hit high earners, that has came apart in like quite no, no, a no, big you way. Mean, you mean it will hit people other than high earners? Oh, yeah. It, it, oh, sorry, I meant it would only hit high earners. That talking yeah. point has came apart quite rapidly because, and it was buried in the small print, but given the fact that they're going to, how they handle pensions, given the fact how they handle the marriage, uh, the marriage tax allowance... Actually, this will hit people out of the top five percent. Yeah. It, so, so there's there's a load of stuff that I want to sort of reflect on there. Firstly, I think that this manifesto. One of the big problems I have with this manifesto is that it is an entire like Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, radical leadership of the Labour Party, offered an opportunity to actually say, you know what, we want a Scandinavian style welfare state. We want, we, we are accepting that, yes, you'll pay more in tax in general terms, but what you will get in return is, you know, better healthcare, better pension provision, better transport, all, all, the, all of that kind of stuff. And whereas, you know, and, and genuinely have a discussion about what the government's involvement in our public realm is and the expectation that everyone will pay for it. What we've ended up with this manifesto is the fiction that we can get Scandinavian-style healthcare, whereas basic, and everyone will basically have sort of American-style, I know it's not as extreme as America, but, you know, that, that the, the same level of tax that, that, you know, so people will get something from a, from, and they hopefully won't notice it. Now, you know, that is just not realistic. That is not, you know, and there are loads of, Arguments. Basically, all they want from an election is someone somewhere pleased to make some kind of interesting intellectual argument, rather than just go round and round in tiny circles. The married, the the withdrawal of the marriage tax allowance is something I broadly believe in and I agree with. But the problem is, if you open up with nobody earning less than eighty thousand pounds is basically going to notice this in their pay packets, and then you find one example because the marriage tax allowance is I think two hundred and fifty quid a year. It's not a big it's not a big and, you know, it's not a major um, tax policy, but, you know, it's 250 quid a year. And as soon as you can find that, you can kind of go, ah, this isn't true. And then you're going to cast out on the rest of your entire manifesto. If they had gone, you know, with a few exceptions, this, this hit, you know, this will generally hit. And, you know, you could, you could make this, you could 
Gordon Brownify this in terms of numbers. But by being that simplistic, they've ended up really throwing themselves under the bus. And it's just the pro. And also, yes, it does have that lack of credibility. I mean, if, you know, the 2017 manifesto was extremely, you know, did seem to change something. You know, I think there was, in general terms, what that, 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 what that taught me was, you know, in general terms, if the trade unions write a manifesto, it'll probably do quite well. That is the lesson they should have taken. What they took was, ah, the Labour manifesto under Jeremy Corbyn is popular. Jeremy Corbyn did not really write the 2017 <laughs> manifesto. He's written the 2019 one, and it appears to be not exactly popular. Well, I think what the happened was they were like, well, we did a really big, uh, bold offer and tax and spend last year, uh, last election, and to have the same impact, we're going to have to make an even bigger pl- promise on tax and spend. And instead, it, I mean, it's it's a difficult one because like the, their polls have uptick a bit. I, I think it's more about the Lib Dems' weakness than Labour's manifesto. But their polls have upticked a bit. But this certainly didn't give the action. And certainly like the anecdotal things we're getting from fo- focus groups and uh, uh, vox pots and door, door, doorstepping is that it is wigging people out. Like this is scaring people about how ambitious Labour wants to be. Um, the one thing I... Um, I find astonishing though it's like Labour's been promising to do these nationalisations for almost four years now uh, no over four years now and we still don't have their rationale about why they think we need these nationalisations like I oh, not... I was about to make exactly the same point like me and me and our friend Miles had did a whole long podcast on this um, and during the Alaska election it's like I, I am not against nationalisation, but there are there are there are like distinct reasons why you think nationalisation is a good idea, and they all and from them flow certain ways of doing politics. Um, you know, your argument could be these nationalised uh, these utilities, these entities are making a profit. That profit should be put, should be used to reinvest back in those services or into the wider public realm. So we're going to take them over, and we're just going to get we're just going to leave them alone, and we're not going to change how they're run, and we're going to collect the profit. That's one rationale. The other rationale is is these uh, entities their profits have been made on exploiting uh, either the customers or the workers. The profits are unreasonable. Therefore, we're going to take them over and we are going to change how they're run to make them fairer to customers or staff members. Or it could be these entities are in such an important sphere of society, of the economy, we need to take them over so we can put them to work for the greater glorious plan of the government. They did no those three reasons. They are all perfectly plausible uh, rationale for nationalisation, but they are all different, and from them flow different uh, consequences. And the key thing is, the first one is the one that is least popular, is is least true, because actually, uh, with the exception of things like water and electricity, most of the nationalised entities actually don't make huge profits. So you look at the railways. No one's making a massive fortune within British railways. So why do the operators keep uh, going under and being bailed out by the government? But only that first rationale 
makes sense with how Labour wants to account for it. Because Labour's talking about, mm. well, we all nationalise, but because we're nationalising to get an asset, we don't need to pay for it. Uh, we can pay for it for borrowing without changing the government's balance sheet. Because, you know, we've issued more debt, but we've also got an asset, so effectively we're, we're even. That's only true if you don't do something to your asset that causes it to lose value. I.e., you just keep it running like it is so it maintains its current value, in which case, why are you doing it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right in the sense that you had that, you made that exact same point in almost the exact same language in 2017. Um, the, last thing I'll, the last thing I want to say on the Labour Manifesto is... I think the, one of the differences between 2017 and 2019 is I think the media writ large are having a, a belated case of guilt over the 2017 manifesto because when that was released, Labour was so far behind in the polls that essentially it got a free... A, because it leaked out ahead of its official publication and B, because nobody thought the Labour Party would win. Nobody properly scrutinised that manifesto. And so I think what you've got is a situation where, uh, you know, the senior political teams at Sky and the BBC in particular feel bad about that. And have therefore taken the 2019 manifesto apart in quite a level of detail. Mm. Yeah, I, think, I can I see think that. There's a, there's a couple of things as well. Like, all manifesto launches are always done in the context of the other manifesto launches to some extent. And I think that the sheer incompetence of the 2017 Conservative manifesto, the fact that it was not a costed document, meant that any time anyone talked about costings with Corbyn or McDonnell or any of the other senior figures in the Labour Party, they could go, ah, yes, but we know that the Conservative manifesto is an uncosted document there's no you know we, we ours is fully costed even if part of the costing is you know we're going to tax unicorn farts which will guess 150 million pounds a year or whatever it was you know but like, even if you know because they were able to say this is a costed manifesto and the conservative one isn't it played into the sense of the you know that this was a manifesto that you know it was radical but it was sensible in comparison to a conservative manifesto this time we've ended up with uh, a conservative manifesto that is you know it's it's pretty pretty bog standard in many ways, um, and you've ended up with a Labour manifesto that sounds completely crazy, and therefore the discussion can be about costings because you can analyse the costings of both manifestos. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think I think I think that's a fair point as well. So oh, can I can I just make sorry? Can I just sorry, Luke, Luke, Luke? Sorry, just one point for me. Um, on I think one of the other things about this Labour manifesto is. Previous manifesto was I think only really Angela Rayner re, uh, really uh, really went to town to get her goodies in it. Um, everybody else was kind of like, Meh. just let the unions and Corbyn do what they want. We're not going to win. This manifesto will be forgotten about after the election's over. Now you can tell everybody wants their pet project in this document just in case this becomes a governing uh, thing. Um, and, like, some of the policies are good, some of the policies are bad. 
but like the the range of odd things that have been snuck in by a front bench for, for example, for example, Will. so uh, Dawn Butler sneaking in the uh, review of Britain's colonial past and the injustices uh, carried out, and to better educate people about what those injustices are. Great policy, support it one hundred percent. And I think people who say, "Well, that won't play in Stoke," black people live in Stoke too, guys. Um, but that it's not the type of thing you would normally put in a manifesto when you're trying to do rah 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 vote for us. That is just everybody thinks that this might be a real governing document and they want their shit in. Okay. Can yeah. we move on to the Tory manifesto now? No. Uh, what did you make of the SNP manifesto, Luke? I haven't read the SNP manifesto. <laughs> oh my God! Isn't the SNP manifesto we don't like Trident? We want more vote. We want another independence referendum. <laughs> I I thought, thought you... about planting trees. Everybody has something about, about planting trees. But yeah, thanks, thanks for dropping me in the streets there. <laughs> okay, Luke, given that you're, you're dying to talk about the Toy Manifesto. I'm how... really not. <laughs> how... By the way, uh, I, think, I, can't remember, I think it may have been uh, Patrick Maguire who took Adam Bolton to task when he called Telford rather remote and was saying, like, but. Telford's next to Birmingham, Britain's second city. How on earth could you call? How on earth could you call it remote? I've been to Telford. No, that shit's remote. Like it is remarkable how it manages to feel that remote, given it's close to not just Birmingham but also Wolverhampton, which is you know a pretty you know, big mid-sized uh, city. It's it is All remarkable right. okay. how remote it feels. Like you you get out to the train station, it's like. There's nothing fucking here. Except okay, Will, ha- Will hates Telford. I don't hate Telford. I'm just yes, saying. And any, and, any, and any readers who would like to... Uh, <laughs> listeners, sorry. From Telford who would like to get in contact, he's at Will Cooling on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't... You crossed the Telford massive you there, Will. I think they call themselves Shop Sharians. <laughs> anyway... Um, yeah, the Tory manifesto is a big pile of nothing. But uh, I mean, the, the one sort, of, the one sort of slightly radical policy that is in there, um, except Brexit, Boris, um, shot his wad on. Well, this is a bit like, which is can, can Luke. So Luke, um, like the um, threshold for NI contribution. Before we get into that, can we just say this? This does this. Manifesto does have a radical policy. It's to take us out of the European Union. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, I mean, but I mean, it's weird because on the one hand, yes, it's proposing to do something incredibly radical, but it's proposing to do something incredibly radical that we've been talking about for the last three years. But like, but it's, but yes, but like again, it's proposing to take us out of the European Union. Like it is remarkable. No, I mean, actually, in fairness, I think it makes perfect sense. Um. To run on a to run on a safety first manifesto. This is what Theresa May should have done. Yeah. Because whether you like it or not, I don't think I can say say what you want about Boris Johnson, and I can say quite a bit. I think he has realised something that alluded to Theresa May, which is for better or worse, your premiership is going to be defined by Brexit. If you get Brexit right, nothing else you do wrong will matter. Likewise, if you get Brexit wrong, nothing else you do right will matter. 
Um, no, I, I this is a very this is a very Linton Crosby um, esque um, manifesto, and Linton Crosby isn't running. People keep saying Linton Crosby is running the Tory manifesto. Sorry, the Tory campaign. His company is. He is in too poor a health to actually be the campaign manager. It's one of his proteges that is actually running it. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with all that, but again, I think we just need to stress, actually, this is a very radical document. <laughs> it's just kind of hidden its radicalism behind, like, the sea of, of exhaustion from the populace. Um, we've all gone nose blind about not just the nature of Brexit, but, the, sorry, not just Brexit as an act of itself, but as Simon was talking about, the type of Brexit Boris Johnson is saying he wants, although I'm not entirely sh- sure... Um, that's true. Um, it's an incredibly radical document. I will say, the one thing I will say about this manifesto, we all had to go scurrying to re- re- refresh our memory of what was in the other manifestos. You don't have to do that with the Tories. Like they, they, they've, it's a very Blairite thing of like, you know, it's 20,000 new police officers, it's 50,000 new nurses... Um, it's, an, it's, a, it's a point system for, uh, for immigration. I hate that, by the way. Work <laughs> permit is better. Like, it's, it's quite tangible and it's quite easy mm-hmm. to rattle the, the pledges off. But, 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 I will, I think, I, I think, I think that, I think that is true. But what I will say, sort of counter to that, is we, on the previous podcast, me and Will were talking about the IFSs reaction to um, the Labour manifesto being one of, you know, the IFS having a collective struggle. And the IFS reaction to the Tory manifesto was meh. Basic, I can't remember exactly how they found the... Uh, It would have been slight for a budget. It'd be slight for a budget. Yeah, but basically, um, the ambition of this manifesto we would cons- we would consider this very modest if it was a single budget, and I do think the Tories are going to have a problem. I think they have already had a problem, and I think it's going to get worse the closer we get to polling day. Just maintaining people's interest. But no, I disagree because again, like it comes, they don't want people to be talking about. The manifesto, they want people to be talking about Brexit and Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. This is where Theresa May went wrong. She, with by doing such an interesting, bold manifesto... Yeah, she, that's, one, that's one word for it. Well, I mean, it, it was an interesting document. Like, there, there were things you could no, really talk inco- about. it was incoherent. It had interesting policies in it, but and because of that, they helped get the conversation off what they wanted to talk about. Um, and that's not that's not a mistake the Tories are making this time around. Can you just... Well, I think you, you made a very interesting point about the 50,000 extra nurses pledge oh, yes. offline, Will, which I, think a lot, which I think gets overlooked by a lot of people discussing this. Because you actually, like, you actually like have some experience in HR. Well, it's not so much makes me say HR. It's, it's back when I worked at Leicester and I was involved in my resource planning... So the, the whole thing that has kind of got the toy got the toys in some trouble was they say they say fifty thousand more nurses, 
Um, but they're only planning to recruit an extra 31, 32,000, and the other 18,000 come from taking steps to improve retention. And people are saying that this is lying, and it's not. Um, this is how resource management works. Like, if you have a rate of attrition, if you have a rate of people leaving a, a workforce, and you can do something to reduce that rate of attrition, Providing you're not then going to pay for those measures by reducing your recruitment, you have created new posts. How it's done in management, it's, it's, it's a it's perfectly legitimate way of talking about how you change things. Now, the question, the bigger question for the Tories, do they actually have stuff that they can actually plausibly improve retention? Um, and the answer is no. Like Stephen Bush did a quite good job of this way. He looked at how much the Tories were planning to invest in improved retention uh, measures, and it's like not it's it's not the order of magnitude uh, above what the Le Labour government did. I think under Patricia Hewitt um, to get the the kind of improvements you need. But in terms of philosophically. Yes, you, you, it is perfectly legitimate to include retained nurses to a target of 50,000 more nurses. But, by the way, just, sorry, just one more thing to say on that. You get the same thing with the armed forces in various iterations of the, the strategic defence review that's been done, strategic defence reviews, and they, they almost never meet those targets. Yeah, but also, I mean, it's also where it is better no, to. It's well, better. Oh no! Can I just come back directly on that? Then so I'm going. It is better to retain an experienced practitioner that you've invested a lot of money in training than to recruit a new person. Like it's not just yeah. it's not just a way to fiddle figures. It's also a good thing to do if you can do it successfully. So are you about to say something, Simon? So I think that. Like, this entire discussion is valid, and your final point is really important and all of that, but it goes against the the sort of Blairite, safety-first nature of this manifesto. And I think there is some pretty radical stuff in here beyond Brexit. But, like, you know, if they just said, we're going to hire 31,000 new nurses, everyone would have gone, that is a number I understand. Maybe 30,000, because people like round numbers. And everyone would have gone, hmm, okay. And then you could have said, and also we're going to work to retain a further 19,000, meaning we get... To, but the headline figure of 30,000, no one would have spent days and days, and no one would... And, and then bang, manifesto. It's an interest. It was an odd decision to sort of muddy the waters in a way that we've just spent like the last five or six minutes talking about, you know, NHS HR policy. Fair point. Fair point. Well, what's the... I'm just interested. What's the stuff you think is fairly radical outside of Brexit? I think it's just, I think what, what this manifesto basically is, is a sort of, it's the manifesto for people whose mums read the mail on Sunday. Um, there's the, there's the, um, there's the traveller's rights issue that I think is very concerning. It basically is essentially about seizing property. Um, there is going to be, I think we, you know, the healthcare tourism stuff is going to uh, make the lives of people in that way a lot very difficult. Possibly radical is the wrong phrase for it. But what's, they, this, sorry, what's the healthcare tourism stuff? That basically, people from outside of um, the UK are going to have to pay. Are, are going to come close to paying the full, you know, full, full cost of their healthcare. You know, um, which is um, again is a is like um, voter ID. It is an extreme. It's a very. It's a hammer to crack an extremely small nut. Healthcare tourism 
isn't something that's costing us a lot of money, but it's an extremely popular policy. You know, my mum, who's never voted Conservative in her life, complains about this. It's the kind of policy that will crack... Through. It's, it's like the points system for immigration. It's a policy that sounds sensible, even if it actually is going to probably do quite a lot of damage and make things more difficult. Because as soon as you have to start chasing people for money, you have to hire people to do that, for one well, thing. Well, it's not just um, that. If you're trying to hire people to do that, you know, by getting a hold of people who are now in Canada or Australia or South Africa, that becomes a much more expensive business. One of the reasons the American healthcare system is so expensive is you have to hire a load of people to chase down people's, you know, people who aren't able to pay. It's not just that side, um, though. Sorry, so just on that directly. It's not just that. It's also the fact that you have to kind of check who isn't and isn't foreign. And those checks, in terms of the kind of British people being inconvenient for people assuming they may be foreign and wanting to do a check, they don't look like the three of us. No. You know, it's, it is going to be black and Asian and other ethnic minority people or people with a European sounding surname, etc., etc., etc. These are the people who get checked. Um, and I've got, you no, know, I've got personal experience of this. You know, through, you know, through, through, through my family. You know, these, this kind of, it's basically, you know, sort of hostile environment. If you really try and do a crackdown, you're going to get people who are British, who are in a point of distress, having some bureaucrat hound them because they have, for various reasons, assumed their fault. Yeah, I, th- I, I now you now you sort of talk. I'm 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 glad you guys have flagged that up actually because I missed that. There was something else in there that I thought was quite as public. Again, to talk to Simon's point about stuff that's popular but bad policy. Um, something about limiting right to strike on the railways. So you would have to have like a minimum service guarantee before you could call industrial action. Now I'm sure that's going to be really popular. But I worry about how that would work in practice because you're effectively abridging somebody's right to the strike. Because what happens if the union sits, wants to sit down with the train company and go, okay, we want to negotiate a minimum service contract, and the company just goes, no. So therefore, you can't go on strike. Yeah. Yeah. I, she's, I, mean, I, I don't know the details of how that would be implemented. But if you're going to try and... I mean, I'm not sure you should... I'm not sure from first principles you should be trying to do that anyway because the whole point of industrial action is it inconveniences somebody. If it doesn't, by definition, it's it's ineffectual. But I I can see why there would need to be some kind of minimum service provision because... Transport is rather like the police or the fire brigade. It is something that people need to have. But I'm just not clear from where the manifesto, as I've read it, what would be the mechanism to force the train operators into that negotiation? I, I, I mean, I, yeah, I'm reading it now. There wouldn't be one, and I think that's, you know, basically, deli- you know, this is not, the Conservative Party is not, on the side of the trade unions. I know as a Conservative member, you've just made a very coherent case for the importance of trade unions that I entirely agree with, but that is not the position of the Conservative leadership. I think they will, you know, in the end, this is about trying to undermine the right to strike. Um, And using the trains is a very clever way of doing it because somehow, because rail strikes are the sort of strikes that they happen relatively frequently and they get a lot of news coverage. 
and every and a lot of people have a lot well a lot of people who I imagine the Conservatives were worried they were going to lose the votes to the Liberal Democrats are the ones who are trying to get the seven thirty two from Milton Keynes or wherever. You know, it's a very clever policy. Yeah, and frankly, in in my opinion, the re- and frankly, it's also in my opinion, it's clever policy because the rail unions are an unsympathetic target. Because yeah. I'm not going to say this is a general. Uh, I'm not going to make a general point, but some of the reasons they strike don't. Some of the reasons they've called the RMT have called strikes in the past for me don't make a lot of sense. In terms of they don't reach a level of seriousness that requires, that from my point of view, would require industrial action. Well, also, they they fall into that classic problem that we were talking about with the the nurses' pledge earlier. Like, they're not, you can't explain them in 20 seconds. And in the end, that's what you have to be able to, you have any policy, and that's whether you're a trade union or a political party, you have to be able to say, we're doing this because... And you've got a sentence or two. But normally it was like, we're doing this because there was the problem with these three workers, which obviously means that we're breaking this, you know, and I've turned off already or I've, you know, yeah, it's the old, I've made my toast. It's the old um, uh, Ronald Reagan line, if you're, if you're explaining, you're losing. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I, it's worth saying, like, I, it's clever politics as, uh, because of the kind of London emphasis, um, which is a big, no. RMT strikes on the tube is a perennial issue. Lots of people trying to get in and out of London who who might be switchers. There are also a lot of strikes going on in the West Midlands uh, for the first time in a while. So wow. again, that's clever politics. Again, a key marginal area, but all particularly hitting a lot of the commuter trains uh, in and out of Birmingham. Well, hang on, those strikes are on Saturday, so you can't say they're hitting commuter trains. Sorry, I meant commuters in terms of stopping services. Okay. So, like, did the local, like, the the, lo, the greater local Birmingham uh, stopping services? Um, so yeah. So I, I I thought it was clever politics. Can I just have my little rant about the Australian style uh, point system for immigration? You go ahead, Will, because I know that'll make you feel a lot better. So, first of all, the, like, I know this is like focus group to death. I know that this resonates. And it resonates because, and it resonates in America as well. There is just this kind of inbuilt thing in like a lot of people's minds that the Aussies are like militant, uh, nasty racists. And so you say, well, we're going to have an immigration system like the Australians. And people go, oh, cool, blimey. This is going to be really, really tough. That's great. Um, But the like... The, the parts of the Australian uh, immigration system that are quote-unquote tough is the basically, we don't let anybody in who tries to swim onto our shore, we let, we let people drown in the sea, or we pick them up and dump them back on the island they came from. That's the tough stuff. The formal legal visa process is not being designed to be restrictionist. The whole point of uh, the whole point of the point system is to get as many highly educated immigrants into Australia as possible in the quickest, most efficient way. What we want as a country that's trying to reduce immigration is a work permit system like the Americans have and particularly like the Canadians have because they, they have a, a similar system to the Americans but it's much more uh, logically laid out because... The Americans are a bunch of dingbats. Um, you want a system which says, we have done this analysis. Here are the areas of our economy, our society, where we need 
more immigrants to do work. There are so many permits available for this work. Have at them. Point system at like to achieve restrictionism is stupid. I agree with you, but <laughs> I just want to I just want to add something that I think is quite sort of important in this in, in this debate. The reason why you get the reason why you get that reaction is that John Howard, uh, the Howard government in particular, but the Liberal Party, which is the which is weirdly the Conservative Party in Australia, has spent the last two decades shouting through a megaphone that it has the toughest immigration policy in the world. And like Will says, in a lot of of senses, it does. Because when it's been faced with a a similar kind of refugee crisis to the one that Europe's been faced with, i.e. a lot of people trying to cross a significant body of water, there has not been anything like there's not been anything like the um, the attempts to rescue people. Yeah. So I, th- I think the reason for this is Australian politics has been defined by this issue for a very long time, and somehow I'm not quite sure how it's bled out globally into the zeitgeist. Yeah, no, that's a good... like Australian politics is so marginal. I'm not sure how this has happened. Because everyone's heard of Australia. Like, everyone everyone knows what Australia is. Um, everyone has an idea of Australia. Um, and a lot of people have a random relative or friend who now lives there. Um, so I think Australia, just in the mindset, is, oh, it's a, it's a big country, partly because it takes up a lot of space on the map. Whereas, actually, it's smaller than Canada in terms of population. Yeah. yeah. But by the way, Australian politics fascinating. Like Simon has Simon has this weird um, thing with Irish and Canadian Time politics. Sense. My thing is Australian politics. It's fascinating. Ah, Australia, the Texas of the Commonwealth. Yeah. Um, anything else on the Tory manifesto? As I move move past that drive by in Australia, I just need needlessly slipped in. <laughs> It's struck the balance quite well. I think that was the only real bad gaff he's had this campaign. I think he's been better. I'm not even sure it was a gaff, but Oh I'm pretty sure it was a gaff because I think it was definitely a gaff because like they someone went to his press office and was like, uh did he just say what we think he said? And we like they were like, oh we'll get back to you. Um, I mean I don't know. Like stuff like that, does it ever really resonate? Like I, I, I thought this when the coalition was doing their disastrous policy of like raising the personal allowance to twelve twelve thousand five hundred. I really think that you get a lot more bang for your book by changing tax rates than the allowance. I don't people are quite shaky about what the allowance is. Whereas I would just actually actually there is one more thing I wanted to say about that. It and um, like it is raising the personal allowance. 
raising the, the um, threshold and I contributions, it's yet another step towards shrinking the tax base. Yeah. And I don't like it for that reason because one of the one of the reasons you have such problems around the social safety net in the US is that there is a large group of people who don't pay income tax. Well, don't, don't don't exaggerate that too much because all, almost all of those people pay poll poll payroll taxes. Yeah, they pay some form of tax. And and they pay state local taxes. So that is like a Republican talking point, but it's it's not really true. You're right. You're right in the sort of wonkish sense, but when people hear the word tax, they tend to think of tax as being on income. The payroll is on income. And the the fact that it's an effective talking point kind of speaks to what what I was saying, which is if you reduce the tax base and you make benefits more targeted, you make it harder to make the case for the welfare state. Yeah, I agree. I mean, to me, I think the national insurance is more defensible than the income tax because of the way income tax, uh, national insurance falls. The fact that it's capped, so you, know, you don't pay national insurance on your income after you reach a certain point. Uh, no, I can't remember what the figure is. You know, your, your 50th, 50,000th, uh, Pounds you no longer pay national insurance on. Um, I vehemently hope the next Tory government has the common sense to just not touch the income tax personal allowance for the next five years. Um, well, they certainly can't raise it any higher. Well, they, what they've been doing is keeping it tracking with inflation. Um, but I, I, I would be a, I would be great, very grateful if we could. Uh, well, I, I wouldn't be personally grateful because obviously it's, it's money in my pocket. But yeah, the income tax threshold raise is a terrible, terrible policy. I mean, Stephen Bush and Lou Seisman has a funny thing of whenever he criticises it, you get a Lib Dem <coughs> press officer poking him to remind him that it was their policy first. And he's like, mm. but I'm criticising it. Like, you did read the article. I am complaining that this terrible policy happened. I mean, I, I, I don't agree. I don't agree with you or Stephen Bush, but I will say this: the the income tax threshold has been raised as far as it conceivably can be. No, it needs to go back. I mean, because the the issue is right. The income tax threshold raise. It's kind of like the toys version of tuition fees. It is, but less defensible in the sense of it was something you're pretending is there to help the less fortunate, the less well off, but it actually helps the most fortunate because one. Um, a lot of the mo- the poorest people in the country weren't earning enough enough to be paying income tax before the coalition side raising the threshold. But two, if you increase the threshold by a pound, sorry, if you increase the threshold, somebody who is only earning enough to hit that threshold, they are losing. They are they are gaining uh, income back far less than somebody on 40,000 because what that threshold does is it, it it delays when the other tax rates hit, hit in so you increase the threshold by 12, by 4 grand somebody who now has 4 grand extra of income that rather than being taxed at 40% is now being taxed at 20% they are caning it in much more than somebody um, who has only gained 4,000 of non-taxable income Okay, I think we've gone off way too far into the weeds now. 
So shall we talk about some of the media controversy? Oh yes, so, so we, we're, we're, we're about the last ten days. We're bored of talking about policy. Let's talk about punch up. Um, <laughs> how did uh, Jeremy Corbyn do when he went to see Andrew Neil? Do you want to lead off, Simon? Yeah, I mean, uh, okay. Let's 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 be fair. Um, it could have been worse. Uh, he could have literally set himself on fire. He could have said he was friends um, with Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, yes, he could have been. He could have the same PR consultant as uh, Prince Andrew. Are we sure he doesn't? Actually, no, Prince Andrew's PR consultant um, quit, didn't they? Yeah. Isn't <laughs> his PR consultant the voices in his head? <laughs> Pretty much. I I would always advocate that what you want is the world's largest independent PR agency. That's the way to do things properly. Um, which I feel I should point out is my employers. Um, please continue to pay my little the little bit of a pension I have. I, and if um, you look and if you're looking for so much study, you come to the University of Wolverhampton if you're in England, and the University of uh, St Andrews if you're in Canada. Right. Okay. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Right. Luke's so not listening to me today. The problem, the problem with the interview was that it was it was exactly what you would expect from an Andrew Neil interview, in that it opened with broadly, you know, it hit his hardest bruise, it hit his the biggest bruise for, straight out the bat, which is um, basically loads of people in cure anti-Semites, particularly loads of Jews. And it was also on the day, of course, that Rabbi Mervis had stood up and condemned um, the thing uh, had condemned him on anti-Semitism, and the reality is that Corbyn still does not have an answer on anti-Semitism. He is still not saying sorry, and the reason he's not, you know, and the reason he's not saying sorry is they haven't done enough on this. Because once you say sorry, once you do the right thing once, you might have to do the right thing again. But actually, the anti-Semitism, in many ways, that was just it was depressing and it was disappointing and it was. You know, it was very, very sad from the perspective of someone who, you know, has certainly voted and been a member of the Labour Party in the past. But actually, I think he was even worse when you got on to the questions of money, because like he was asked questions about how are you going to pay for things like the Waspy Women policy, which we talked about already, and he clearly didn't have an answer. And more than that, he utterly failed. It was completely obvious to anyone, you know, awake that he didn't have an answer. It was not a well, there wasn't a well-bridged sort of like, you know, we're going to pay for this by doing anything. Like You could have said anything and then you bridge to your, you know, obviously this is really important because it's unfair and it's stealing and all of that jazz. He opened with, no, but I want to tell you about why it's important. It's like, no, no, you need to look like you're answering the question, even if in the case of that, you're not actually answering the question. And then the one that I found most infuriating from the perspective of just sort of like, but I have an answer for you, was when they were talking about the shrinking tax base. Now, the shrinking tax base and the because the idea basically being that the people who are paying like that something like the top one tenth of one percent pay half the income tax. Now, I, again, I it's made this question. 18 OK, or was it? Yeah. Anyway. There is a significant. I only know that because I only just watched it before we started. Ah, but like there is a significant proportion of the tax base which is paid by I think thirty-one thousand people. Andrew Neil said, and instead of his answer was kind of like, "Well, no, it's fine. We'll be okay. We, you know, we can do borrowing. We can do this. We can do." The answer is 
it is an ind- it is indicative of the appalling inequality in the British economy that the that there are there is such a narrow band of people who are so wealthy that in the end you end up with a very narrow band of people who are able to pay that amount of tax. Labour will do this, this, and this to end the inequality. Yeah, but, but here's, That's how you answer no, the but, question. No, no, but here's, Corbyn, it's not. Well, here's a problem though. Something. I mean, I've not seen that part of the interview. Um, a very, very busy week. Blah blah blah. But the problem you have is, is that is not what Labour's manifesto says. Because this is the thing, though. I've made this joke before. You don't, you don't just tax the rich um, to fund public services. You tax them because it's fun. You know, because of what the point you were making, because of the inequality, because of the real negative effects that inequality can have if you leave it unchecked, you have high taxes to reduce rich people's wealth, but you reduce their wealth. So you can't make a song and dance about how you're going to fund ongoing improvements in public services off the back of the rich because you're trying to tax them out of existence you don't want people with this ginormous incomes you want that to be reduced you want that money to be diverted to the employees of their companies to be diverted into maybe cheaper prices for consumers you're trying to use taxation as a cudgel to smash them and to smash their economic power but Corbyn he, he kind of hints at that goal. He hints at that goal that, no, we, the Labour Party is no longer comfortable with people getting filthy rich. But he still wants to do the Blairite conceit of funding public services off said rich people. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I think, sorry, all of those... This goes back to the thing I was saying earlier. The most frustrating thing about Corbyn is he should be this opportunity to have a genuinely radical discussion about, you know, things like wealth and tax and where and what are public. But instead of that, he just is going for these kind of half-baked ideas that sort of sound perfectly lovely, but in the end, they aren't intellectually consistent. Yeah. Uh, can I just say something on anti-Semitism? Um, the reason Corbyn always hedges on anti-Semitism is he can't remember what he said in the past. I think whenever, like, Luke, well, when we did talk about the Prince Andrew uh, interview, Luke said that he saw fear in Prince Andrew's eyes. I already saw that. I always think I see fear when you get Corbyn onto anti-Semitism because he knows he has said dodgy, dodgy shit without fully thinking through the the consequences of what he's saying. And so, like, he always has... So, like, the, the best example of that was when he was talking about... No, they, and Neil quoted him back that line about uh, uh, Rothschild's uh, funding Zionism. Something like that, right? And what he kept trying to say was, well, that's the type of thing that could be used uh, to further anti-Semitism. Because I'm, I, I swear that in the back of his mind, it's like... That sounds like the type of shit I was saying in like 2007, 2009. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and who knows what video is out there. Like, like I think a few days after that interview, a clip for, of him talking to press TV about how the Israeli government keeps forcing the BBC to uh, base its reporting on the fact that Israel has a right to exist. So like, I, I always think there's that thing of, 
if I say this is wrong and we must kick out everybody who says that, maybe someday they'll come for me. But, yeah, I mean, that that was the part of the interview that, that just left me sort of slap jawed, which is um, Andrew Neil gives, I think, two or three examples of clearly anti I mean, I, I don't want to say what the statements are because they're clearly the most vile kind of anti-Semitism. And he says, is that an anti-Semitic statement? Now, I haven't had media training, but the answer to that is yes. Yes, it is. And Corbyn, he cannot bring himself to give the simple, straight answer to that question, which is yes, of course these statements are anti-Semitic. Now, I think the explanation you give, Will, is as good as any. But I genuinely, I am genuinely baffled. No, because I, I, I genuinely, am sure his media handlers must have seen that question coming. Even if they didn't see the particular statements, they must have known that Neil was going to throw anti-Semitic statements used by Labour members at him. I, I don't it find it baffling. Baffles me. I don't find they it. Don't just say. Yes, that is anti-Semitic. I genuinely don't find it baffling. I did when I was hearing the reporter. But when I watched that exchange, I was like, no, this makes complete sense. He's worried about what people might find on him, and so he, that that forces him to hedge. Um, and that's, that's the only explanation I've, I've heard. I mean, it's as good as any other. I, I, I do think... Because there, there are Labour candidates standing in this election who will win seats and the one i'm thinking about is the labor candidate in popper and limehouse just because i happened to be looking them up yesterday like who is accused of making very serious anti-semitic comments they are going to get unless something remarkable happens they are going to be an mp by the end of this year you know this is a you know and that's what you know they can't go i condemn anti-semitic comments yes that's an anti-semitic comment yes that's because these people are still in the party, they're not, ju- and they're not just like a guy who occasionally delivers a leaflet on a Wednesday. They are people who are running for offices. They are there, and this is a this is a it's a disgrace. And the thing I, is, I mean, Simon, you you'll know this as well as I. We both um, have experience of hanging around in left wing circles and in like anti racism circles. I do think one of the issues as well is is that until this blew up and became like a talking point in the media, people in the left had gone a bit nose-blind to anti-Semitism because you would go to an event and there would be that crank with some uh, on the table with some dodgy leaflet, some dodgy book. Um, I was saying to Luke, I can't remember it was on the previous show offline, like the horrible incident on the tube with uh, the, uh, the black guy uh, like completely berates him. The Jewish guy about how uh, uh, black Africans are the true Israelites. I've heard people talk about that theory. Um, you know, no one picked up on what he was talking about, but I saw a few clips and I said, I've been at events where I've heard people do this theory and ex- yeah. expound on this theory. And I think, you know, people, it's not a few isolated examples. This is something that's like endemic in like the left activist space and it's kind of. If anything good comes out of it, hopefully the fact that this has been reported on for so many years now, once Corbyn and his generation depart the stage, you'll get some proper reckoning and actually start actually confronting this because 
it's everywhere. It's everywhere in that left activist space. Yeah. No, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll, just, I'll just say one word more on... Um, okay, okay, so Luke, can, can Simon just come back? Sorry. I, I, wasn't, I was just agreeing with you. Yeah. I realised that was another reason you wanted me to come back. Yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, you were saying, Luke. And just last word on Corbyn's performance. Um, this is something you see in, in, in TV interviews with Jeremy Corbyn time and time again. He is not the magic grandpa. This is not a nice man. This is a man on the edge of really losing his temper in a very profound yeah. way. Well, this is a thing as well, like, he's not Magic Grandpa, both in a positive and a negative sense. Like, this is this is a street fighter. You, you don't get, like, okay, his seat is now is a safe seat, but you don't get the nomination from where he was in 83 by being a nice guy. You don't stay at the top of hard left politics for as long as he did by being this affable guy that everybody can take advantage of. Um, you don't survive what he's done over the past few years without having some sense of inner steel. And so, yeah, you're right. The Magic Grandpa stuff has all sorts of connotations that are unfairly positive to Corbyn. It also has a lot of negative connotations that I don't think are true. Like the idea that he's a weak will guy... I find bizarre. Like, this is like the most radical, politically determined guy um, who the Labour Party has ever put up to be Prime Minister. Um, and so the idea that at heart he's a big softy is bizarre. No, but like, were Jeremy Corbyn ever to become Prime Minister? I can say, I, 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 this, this sounds like massive hyperbole, but I don't think it is. I can see quite. I can see a day coming very quickly if he became prime minister, where there would be people outside Andrew Neil's house protesting, where the BBC would come under enormous pressure to remove him because you you could see the anger and contempt in Corbyn's face in a way that professional politicians generally don't allow themselves to display. This is- I completely agree with you, and I think this is a really interesting point. In the 2017 campaign, which, you know, was the first time he was really, you know, in the public consciousness all the time, really, it was a campaign that basically went well. By this stage of the campaign, Labour were closing the gap. It was feeling optimistic. You know, there was a sort of vibe around it. That's under, You know, that hasn't happened this time. And I think... Corbyn is best when basically he's win- he feels like things are going in the right direction. I don't think they will feel like they're going in the right direction in the next two weeks. The question is whether or not, if he has any more big interviews, whether he, uh, he, he certainly, you're right, he looks like he was about to lose his rag. The question is whether he actually will. Because I can absolutely, like, that's the thing that could find, you know, if he actually finally turns on an interviewer, particularly, of course, for Sky News because of the left-wing attitude to the Murdochs, then I think that could be really interesting. Um, but he is, yeah, he is a he is a man, and this is a thing I, I want to talk about more generally in relation to the um, Antonin interview and um, Boris Johnson, but there is a... I think the BBC is at risk at the moment in a way it hasn't been for a very long time yeah. because you have two political parties who basically, dis, who basically don't, want to, don't really want it around. Well, let me... Before you understand, let me just quickly say... Um, on Cor- I, I find it quite interesting. As I said, I've only watched like the first, I think, the first third of the interview. But, like... Because at the very start of his leadership, he would just get angry... So, like, yeah. the media trading is there. 
And so he look. He doesn't look angry. He looks contorted. He looks warped. He looks like doubled up inside. It's, it's a really strange thing where you can tell somebody is silently screaming in the, in their soul, um, but like their media training is almost working like Prozac where they can't <laughs> express it. And so it made for a really odd spectacle because like he had like it's like it was like he was on Prozac. He had like the dual down version of all the tells of when he was losing his rag with somebody before he got his media training. Like, you go back to his interviews in 2015-2016, a lot of the things like the raising his voice, the kind of uh, sitting upright, the, the raising his finger, the stuff he was doing in that interview, he'd be doing that, but he'd be shouting. Yeah. The, uh, the, the constant, will you let me finish? Yes, yes, exactly. Well, that was the other one. Like Andrew Neil was constantly butting in. He was only yeah. butting in when Corbyn was trying to was trying to basically pivot to not answering the question. Well, I thought the he most actually. And I, I, I can talk about this for a minute. So I watched the I watched the Corbyn one. I watched. Oh no no! no we get, don't Luke Luke. Andrew Neil is the best interview on British television by a country. Yeah, he is, and he, he, he's Absolutely. he seems to have calmed down. That's made him more effective. I think he's looked at how politicians gain wise to the bouncers, and he has changed his tactics because he used to be much closer to Paxman in terms of the constant interruptions. And for whatever reason, he has decided, no, I'm going to sit back. I'm going to ask more questions on detail, and I'm going to play it play it a bit straighter. And I, I think it does work. The the one thing I just want to say. Um, on that, like the most shocking thing, well, I think you could tell just how much he was pissed off. Uh, Neil goes to leave the anti-Semitism issue. Any other politician that had that sort of pacing on a topic would be like, thank Jesus, we're off that topic. Corbyn mm-hmm. takes it back. Have you ever seen a politician, a leading politician, be beaten up on an issue and basically extend the conversation for an extra minute because he's got to get the last words? No, I mean, this, I mean, this is the thing. If Corbyn were being asked genuinely unfair questions, fair enough, I can, I can deal with you getting angry with that. But these are not unreasonable questions he is being asked. And they're not surprising. I mean, it goes back to, I don't remember which one of you guys were saying, they're not surprising questions as well. Like, these are no. questions you should have seen coming. The one other thing, um, uh, I just want to say, back to Simon's point, the one thing I think as well you've got with uh, the Labour leadership is back in 2017, they felt if they just did a creditable second place, they could survive and and live to fight another day. So the margin, like what they were aiming for was much lower and like they massively surpassed it. But like, no, they they were prepared for Corbyn to hang on if Labour increased its vote share while still losing seats. Now, because of Corbyn's age, because of uh, the kind of the, the encroaching gloom and toxic and toxicity around him. If he does not become, he will not um, be the like full pucker leader of the opposition on the thirty first of December. He will either be awaiting the Labour Party to organise an election to replace him, or he will be prime minister, or we will be looking to some sort of sh- uh, shindig in the beginning of January, where we straighten out who's a Prime Minister. This is all or nothing now. He either wins and becomes Prime Minister, or he loses and he retires. 
And I think that increases the pressure as well. So I, 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 I mean, that is what I want because, as I will mention later, I think that we're heading for a conservative majority, and I would like Corbyn to leave. Um, I don't. I, I'm not. That, I'm not that optimistic. I think that they will basically that there will be figures on the left. Yes, I'm talking about Navarra Media, who will basically, unless as long as there is still some Labour MPs somewhere will go, ah, but he's done better than finds random example from history of the Labour Party, he can clearly survive and choose his successor. Um, because they are terribly, you know, they, they know that everything, the left, the left leadership and the Corbynites have tied them, actually the fact that you call the Labour left the Corbynites is indicative of something. They have tied all of their hopes and dreams in this deeply mediocre old man who beyond everything else we said is just not very good at most of this and like he they they will not let him go he will have to choose to retire and i don't trust that jeremy corbyn even if he did worse than ed miliband did in 2015 even if we are in michael foot 1983 territory even you know, even if even if he will not retire because the reason foot went so quickly was foot was a labor man he had been he was he was had a degree of honor. I don't think I fear Corbyn will not go until he is basically pushed literally in front of a bus. What do you think, Luke? I um um frankly I'm not gonna venture an opinion. I think it depends I think it depends very heavily on what the PLP looks like on December the thirteenth. Uh, and I also think it depends it depends to a great extent on not only on the shape of the PLP in terms of in terms of its ideology, but could it cohere around a relatively small field of candidates, uh, or could um, could there be a Michael Howard figure who could step into the breach because? The problem, the, the problem the Labour Party has got, and this goes, the problem the Labour Party has got is that Ed Miliband changed the rules for electing a leader to get through a selection crisis and a bad PR situation in Falkirk. And the fact is that the rules, the leadership rules, as they're written at the moment, the rules for a leadership election don't make sense. They don't. Um, so actually, I don't think you want Corbyn going. I think if you want, I think if Corbyn goes, you want a caretaker leader, and it won't be Tom Watson now. Who can there's not going to there's not going to be a caretaker leader. A coherent set of rules. That's that I can tell you that is not going to happen. There will not be a caretaker leader. There's nobody in the Labour Party who is in that position. And if Corbyn's out you're looking at a five-year twin majority government. Why would you have a caretaker? I remember this This was often the thing that was, it was said in 2001, it was said in 2005, let, let, let's have the Tories have a caretaker leader. It was said, it was said in 97 as well, actually. Let the Tories have a caretaker leader to knock the place into shape. It's just not the way the politics work. You get yeah, a leader. You I, get a leader. I think that's fair. But you get a lead. Do you agree my larger point that there is no, a mess not, in not, the Labour Party? Not, not particularly. Particularly around the rules for selecting the leader. Not particularly. That, I think that, that make replacing Corbyn no, very difficult. No, not particularly. I think the Labour's rules for leader are fine. Um, you, you, you have to have 
um, a decent chunk of the parliamentary party support you. Uh, if MPs don't play silly buggers and lend nominations, it works fine. And people blame the Ed Miliband rules. It wasn't Ed Miliband who lent his uh, nomination to Jeremy Corbyn because they were playing games uh, to position themselves against Yvette Cooper. You know, the people supporting Andy Burnham. Um, no, you, ah, Andy Burnham. You, you, you have to have a chunk of... working class man in all of working class... You have to have a chunk of the, of the PLP to nominate you. You then have a single transferable ballot for leader. The person who gets the, uh, the votes wins. I think it's a yeah. perfectly sensible system. The reason it went completely do lally is because MPs didn't play the system properly um, in 2015. Okay, are we going to... Should we move on? Can I do two minutes on Nicola Sturgeon? Or how I would like to think of it, how you deal with an Andrew Neil interview? Go on. Okay. I don't agree with anything Nicola Sturgeon says about anything ever, pretty much. If Nicola Sturgeon said the sky was blue, I'd have to look out the window. I disagree. Not only do I disagree with her, I profoundly dislike her brand of politics. I dislike her party. I dislike what it stands for. I would never even consider voting for the SNP or anything to do with them. But on a purely technical level, she did much better against Andrew Neil than Jeremy Corbyn did. And I was and I was desperately hoped because the reaction on Twitter was, oh that was a car crash. The reaction on Twitter was, oh that was a car crash. Now I think that to some extent reflects the Twitterverse that I move in. Um, and that's something I probably need to do something about. I told but, I told you, Luke, you shouldn't be hanging around with those Iron Georgia guys. They keep leading you astray. But it, it wasn't a car crash. It was a tough interview. But it's Andrew Neil. It was always going to be a tough interview. Um, yeah. She answered the questions. She kept her cool. There was one moment when Neil absolutely did malater, which is on the state of the Scottish NHS. Uh, and the SNP are the last people on earth to talk about protecting the NHS because they are running the NHS into the ground up here. And I think Andrew Neil got that absolutely perfectly. And that was the one moment where, yeah, this was a bit of a car crash. Because the fact is, Nicholas Sturgeon has been in office for a very long time now and a lot of very stupid policy particularly the free prescriptions for everybody, is coming home to root. Because that takes an enormous amount of money out of the Scottish NHS, and it subsidises people like me who can pay the £10 for their asthma inhaler. It's the biggest case of middle-class giveaway welfareism ever. And because I get a free asthma inhaler, I'm much more likely to die of cancer. Thank you, Nicola. I think the Scots shouldn't let the English in. Like, look, the Scots are giving Luke free prescriptions, and how does he repay them, Simon? I know. It's, it's on, and on St Andrew's Day. Yeah. patriotism. Dude, what, 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 what next, Luke? What, what, sorry, Luke, one second, one second, Luke. I would, I would consider, I, 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 love, I love Scotland, I love living in Scotland, I want to keep living in Scotland. Well, you're going about in a very strange way. Because she was calm, she was collected, she got her points across well. I didn't agree with anything she said, 
But in terms of technique, she was very good. So, so what next on the agenda, Luke? Do you want to complain that your diamond shoes are too tight? Yeah, I'm just saying. Free ass moon Layla, gonna die of cancer. Which you want? But, but you, you won't. You won't, Luke. You you'll move if if you get if you need cancer treatment, you just move down to England and use our health service. <laughs> anyway, should we talk about the not the not Andrew Neil interview? Well, yeah. Before we get that, I just want to quickly ask Simon. Um, how, because I haven't seen it, I don't know if you saw it, you saw some of the BBC debates, how did Corbyn and uh, Sturgeon do in them? So, um, not the, the, the uh, by the BBC, I mean the one that happened last night, which obviously Corbyn did wasn't on. Did you that watch, was, did you watch one last Friday. Friday as well? Sorry? Did you watch one last Friday? Uh, no, I think I was in the bar. Um, in a more health fit, though, I didn't li- watch those. I listened to them whilst having a run this morning. Wow. Surprising to all of us. And believe me, um, the mixture of the pain of British politics and the pain of my thighs was solid, was like, was an interest. They took what the, each took off to each kind of distraction. You fed on the other. Yeah, well, look, oh, yeah, he was like, oh, everything hurts as I am running around these Abbey ruins. Oh, also, the thing that's going on in my ears makes me want to shoot myself. Oh, well, that's fine. At least I'm being distracted. I mean, so to talk, to talk about the uh, debate last night, so on Friday the 29th of November, um, I think it was clear, basically, that the people who did well are people who've been doing this for a long time. So I, I am with uh, Luke in the Nicola Sturgeon is really good at this. Uh, Cam, I thought she was she was best at doing a, one of the things she did really well was the first question for obvious reasons and I know we haven't talked about it partly because I think there's not really much politically to say about it. Um, in the first about the first question, which was about the London Bridge attacks yesterday, in that she was really good at doing the kind of you know I'm I feel very you know I feel very sorry I I pray praise the uh, say you know the the um, the emergency services and the ordinary people. One of her great strengths was that she made it. She said it in a way that she sounded human. She said, "You know, um, they they behaved in a way we all hope we would." Which you know, everyone else kind of it sounded like they were reading off a script. She sounded more human about it. And then she was able to turn it in a way to talk about shared security in the European Union in a way that sounded really authentic. Um, Rebecca Long-Bailey, who was clearly trying to pull the same trick the Labour Party did after the attacks in 2017, just, you could hear the gears cranking when she kind of went, and this is why we need to spend more money on our police. And it's not an easy thing to do, particularly when you are dealing with, you know, a genuine tragedy. Two people um, have lost their lives, you know, they, um, just because they were wandering around. Um and it's a really hard thing to do. I'm not saying that she was being callous. It just didn't look very good. I think um, that also, sorry, just on that as well. In general terms, Caroline Lucas, again, because she's been doing this for ages. She's been the representative of the Green Party, the Green Party ever getting right to start for many, many years. Um, again, I think, um, just to sort of review this wrong um, in full, uh, everyone knows, obviously, I stand Clyde Comrie, but I genuinely don't know why Clyde Comrie were there. You just end up, as you did in 2015, with the Clyde Comrie, Leanne Wood then, now it's Adam Price, kind of going, ah, this is a question about something. In Wales, da 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 because the role, Clyde Comrie are much less, have got much less to talk about, and they also have a much bigger fight to keep hold of the four seats they have than the SNP have. 
you know, they are the largest party in Scotland. It is undeniable. Um, I thought Rishi Sunak was extremely generic. I, you know, he didn't do, didn't seem to make any terrible mistakes, but he was perfectly kind of, he was fine. Joe Swinton's not great, is she? She's really, she's really underwhelmed. So there's, if you watch, if you watch the TV series Derry Girls, she is the equivalent of that head girl who's anno- who annoys everyone. She just has a does not have a great vibe, I think. And I she's think, not, I think, had a great campaign. I think the and thing, Richard Tice was the Brexit party, and who cares about them? I think the thing with Joe Swinson is, is she was always referred to in the Dem circles as precocious, and they meant it as a nice thing, and everybody else means it as a negative. Like, I don't think that people in the Lib Dem party that like her disagree that much with the people outside the Lib Dem party who don't like her. And I think, I, I don't watch Derry Girls, so I don't watch TV, I just watch wrestling and YouTube videos. Um, I am actually a millennial. Um, but, um... Only uh, just. <laughs> no, I'm quite comfortably in the millennial bracket. You've got, oh, people, you've got people a lot older. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah you got people... in the millennial bracket yeah. too, Luke. You can't yeah. get away from it. Yeah, got a lot of people a lot okay. older than us who are in the millennial bracket. Um, but um, that head girl comparison is perfect. That that is what she comes across. And again, it's like, is that sexism? Is it like anti-swatism? You know, is it like she is clearly really passionate about politics? She's really dedicated to politics. She works really hard at it. But unlike someone like Nicola Sturgeon. Joe Swinson's the type of person who shows her work in, and it just annoys people. I, 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 I find this quite peculiar because I like Joe Swinson. I think she comes across. Don't well. try and suck up to the Scots, Luke. They're gonna kick you out tomorrow. It's too late, man. Go, go on. No, I mean, I, 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 I do, th- I do think this, there's a. I do think, unfortunately, there is a there is a high degree of sexism here because I don't. I, I think I think the SWAT thing. I don't think that would be an issue if she were if she were a bloke. I, really I don't. don't. I, I disagree. I, um, think, I think men who show their working as well in politics get shouted at um, too, unless they're uh, Mayor Pete and he, um, the people we're talking about is the New York Times. Oh, it's um, so awful. I just. I, I think I think she's I think she's had a poor campaign, but I'm not sure any. But, but I'll go back to what I said in the previous podcast. I'm not sure another Lib Dem could have done much better. Um. Anyway, so should we talk about Boris's no shows? Yes. So um. Uh. We we can tell how bad Jerry Corbyn did in the uh, Andrew Neil interview because after that, Boris Johnson probably said, oh, "I'm wa- washing my hair. Um, I'm going to wipe my Christmas cards. Uh, look, I'm just fucking busy, guys." Okay, first question: Do you, do you guys think he will end up doing an interview with Neil? No, I I think he might. Because the polls are tightening, and he might need. A yeah, and this is not playing well. I don't think I don't think the polls are tightening because of this, but I think like with, whilst we've been recording, uh, BMG have came out with a poll that shows a seven point gap between uh, Labour and the Tories. The Tories now below forty percent. 
we are hitting squeaky bum time, and we're hitting squeaky bum time after what I thought was a really good week for the Tories. I think you might have a bit like David Cameron in 2015, getting his shirt off, or getting his jacket off, talking about how pumped he was. I think you're going to have a mini reboot of this Tory campaign, and what that will be, I don't know. Um, but certainly... Why, why, but why would you... Why, I don't understand why, if you've basically been given a free pass by the BBC, why you would then use that you know i accept that yes you probably get yourself yourself in front of three three and a half million people but i don't think it'll go well johnson is not good will not be good at these will not be good at this interview and you know much easier to you know go up to scotland and be seen you know looking at a haggis or whatever you know whatever the kind of much easier to do the nice simple stuff than you know, put yourself through that interview if you realize you've discovered you don't have to do it. I do. But Simon, I just just to, to come back on something you just said, he's not getting a free pass from the BBC. The BBC, it's not like the BBC can send, can send people down to drag him to, to the studio. I think it's a disgrace that Boris Johnson isn't doing this, but it's not the BBC's fault he's not doing it. No, I'm not sorry. I think that's unfair. I think that's um, that's wrong on two grounds. One. These interviews shouldn't have started until all the leaders were signed up to them. Because clearly, Sturgeon and uh, Corbyn and Swenson agreed to the interviews on the understanding that everybody was doing them. And that has been the way it's been done in the past. Um, And there has been a... that Something has gone wrong with the BBC's handling of this, where they have not... uh, They've either actively lied to the other parties... Or they have. I, I can't see that. Or they have, by accident, misled them out due to incompetence. Where Sturgeon and Corbyn can rightly say, "We have been let down by the BBC because we got our knuckle dusted, and you're letting are you letting Johnson get away with not doing it." The but, second. So, Luke, Luke, let me finish. The second point is what Simon is referring to is the BBC try to make a show of strength, a show of force, by keeping Johnson off Mark. Because one of the issues you have with the BBC is it is such a large broadcaster that rather than use that collective way to say, no, it, no, if you want dessert, you have to eat your greens first, they let politicians pick and choose. Like the days of politicians going to news night, like senior politicians going to news night, Ted the knuckle dusters put on them are long gone. But the BBC hasn't retaliated by saying, well, no, we're not letting you on the one show. We're not letting you on, on Andrew Moore. We're not letting you do these puff pieces. You know, if you won't accept our hard interviews, you don't get our soft interviews either. And they tried to make that show of force with the Andrew Marr show, saying that Johnson was disinvited. He's not allowed to come on until he agrees to his Andrew Neil interview. And what have they done today? They've made the U-turn. They're letting him on. But but I'm not sure they really had a choice. I mean, he is the prime minister, and there's just been a terrorist attack. But I think this. So 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 can we can we just say so you always have a choice. But look as well. And also, it wasn't. So can sorry can I just come back there? Yes, it was a terrorist attack. It's 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 horrible. It happened. It was fundamentally a stabbing in London. Like just because. And then hang on, we don't know. We don't know what it was yet. I'm pretty sure we know it was a stab it, don't we? I think that's been confirmed. Yeah, but we don't. But the 
point I'm it was one to guy. But it's one guy. But it's one guy. We do not know definitively that this guy acted alone. But but again, it's one guy stabbing people. Even if he was working with other people, like where I am. No, last week we had people running around the cinema with machetes. Like just because the word terrorism is applied to an incident doesn't actually make it a national emergency. Does Boris Johnson need to be on the Andrew Marr show every single time someone gets stabbed in London? It's completely ludicrous. This isn't mortar attacks on Downing Street. It's not the Brighton bomb. It's a guy who stabbed people on the tube. It's horrible. It should never happen. But it happens in London and any major city all the fucking time. There is no, no public security national emergency justification for why Boris Johnson needs to be on the Andrew Marr show. Also, like, even if, like, like, for Luke goes, we don't know what this is. As if we, like, Boris Johnson being on the Andrew Marr show is not going to give us any more information about this. Um, the Andrew Marr show is not, if the Prime Minister needs to make a statement in Downing Street, as Theresa May did after the attacks in Manchester in 2017, then he, then that is, that is one thing. The Andrew Marr show is basically... A cuddle is a cuddly political program. And Andrew R is a decent interview, but it's not designed to be the you know rigorous attacks. It's the it's the thing you watch with your bre- whilst eating your bran flakes, and you don't want to choke on those. And so you know there is no need. Andrew 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 Marr is not Andrew Marr being offering Boris Johnson that interview about terrorism is not actually going to give us any more information about the investigation into the murder of two people on London Bridge than anything else. And the fact, is, and the worst thing is, is by putting him on, or justify, saying the justification for this is there was a terrorist attack, you're not actually going to properly interview with him about the big issues that Andrew Neil probably would have addressed. Because the first half is going to be, sorry, Prime Minister, um, how is the investigation into the terrorist attack going? And like those aren't illegitimate questions. But if that's the only major BBC media interview he's going to do, and if that's your like instead of the Andrew Neil grilling, and there's a lot to grill on Johnson, then that yeah, is not, so that will not be a fair thing to say, to do. And also, again, like we know Johnson, like, and, and this is like, I don't think he's wrong to do this, but Johnson is not making a mistake Theresa May made last time. He is, he is treated this as a political event. He is treating this as something he needs to prosecute a political argument. You know, they are pushing hard on this early release scheme that it doesn't work. They are coming out really rapidly, like just whilst we've been on the air, you know, Pretty Patels came back hard against Yvette Cooper, making a point that the reason why this guy was on early release is because of a Labour Party uh, piece of legislation that Tories repealed. You know, they... Johnson is going to get softball after softball after softball that he is going to turn to his election stance. And and, and why the BBC... Again... The BBC were the ones who said, we're going to make this. Like, the, they could have invited the Home Secretary, they could have invited the Foreign Secretary, they could have invited the Justice Secretary, they could have invited anybody other than Johnson to get this message out, and they okay. caved. Okay, can I, can, I, can I have my right of reply now, Mr Neil? No, so uh, moving so, on to the next topic. <laughs> go on. I, 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 will keep, I will keep this relatively brief, because we can go round and round on this all day. Um... Just to repeat, I think Boris Johnson should do the Andrew Neil interview. I think it's a disgrace that he isn't doing the Andrew Neil interview. I think there are there are questions 
I agree with you, Will. There are questions that are going to have to be answered around how the BBC have conducted themselves. But I don't think... I think the, the BBC has very limited to no leverage in these situations. And I do think there is value. No, so look, I've got to come back. Minister, who, let's face it, you, know, you can put the Home Secretary on if you like, but the Prime Minister is ultimately the guy in charge. I do think there is value in having the Prime Minister come on television and say, these are the extra security measures we're taking. People going to work in London tomorrow can feel safe. But again, like so. and the, 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 let me finish. And the thing is, if you do that as a state, if you do that as a statement outside Downing Street, the danger that that poses is that you are just by the setting, you're undermining that message slightly. How? Well, because it's outside Downing Street with the. Oh, do you mean you're the one that's calling? You're the one that you're the one that's calling this a stabbing. So why are you giving it the full blow? But, 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 but why um, did he do you ever, Again, like, I, I'm sorry, I, like, I don't want to sound callous. I'm like, Simon, you're the one who live in London, so please correct me if I'm out of lunch. But it's horrible that two people were murdered. Uh, but people get murdered in big cities and elsewhere. I'm not making a, trying to make an anti-city point. But like, people get murdered all the time. Like where I lived a, f- a few months ago, there was like a drive-by shooting. So, they killed two people. I, as, 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 the, as, the, as the podcast London correspondent, can yeah. I tell you what my reaction... Can I tell you my reaction yesterday afternoon? Obviously, first was like, oh, I put a note up on our uh, Microsoft Teams system, because sadly we have to use Microsoft Teams now, saying, oh, just spotted there's been a, you know, there's, they've closed London Bridge, just let anyone know, uh, just to say if anyone when anyone's leaving to check. And then at about quarter past five, I got my colleague, who couldn't be bothered to finish doing what she was doing, uh, to check whether the district line was still running uh, with was worth running with any delay, so I could work out whether how long it was going to take me to get home. That was how the London Bridge attacks impacted my life. Like Londoners, we're not like we don't need to be told that a bloke who is now dead, who you know stabbed two people, and that is you know that is tragic. Look, two people's lives have been lost. Yes, I don't want to be. I fear we're being flippant about it sometimes, but like, like. Two people are dead. The guy who did it was dead. The Metropolitan Police are carrying on their investigations. On Monday morning, I will complainingly go to, go to the office and sit on the district line for an hour. That's how life works. Like, genuinely, this has made... I don't think this has made any impact. Certainly, you know, in comparison to Westminster, in comparison to Borough Market, you know, the other attacks, that have, this this has not really registered on that scale at all. Yeah. And again, I don't want to sound callous. And I apologise if anyone thinks I'm sounding callous. But, again, these things do happen. And I think it becomes a national emergency because it's got the terrorism word attached to it. Mm-hmm. Um, um, uh, but, yeah, but again, can, can you're, I... You're, but, again, Will, you're making the assumption that this is... I'm not making that assumption. I'm not making that assumption, Luke. I'm not. Like, the drive-by I was talking about was a gang, it was a gang shooting. The, the stuff with the machetes in Birmingham, that was linked to gangs. This type of violence happens, but it doesn't get the Prime Minister activating Cobra. It doesn't get people doing X, Y, Z because it doesn't have the word terrorism attached to it. It's been completely blown out of proportion. But just to go back to the more fundamental point, the BBC does have leverage. 
you know, for like what's it, seventy percent of this country, they are our they are uh, our primary news source. Uh, for for a smaller but still significant proportion, they are a solitary news source. They have tremendous power. They have tremendous power on things like the one show, um, the, the, the 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 radio news bulletins. No, the Andrew Marr show. No, blah, 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 blah. They have tremendous power. And they don't use it to actually impose on the Conservative Party. You want X, Y, Z from us. Well, we want Y from you. And you're not getting X, Y, Z if you don't give us what we want. And and why they can't do that bartering properly with, with this Conservative Party is beyond me. I think we're just going to have to agree to disagree. <laughs> so, and we'll so, just going to end up going around and so, look, Simon, you said you were fearful for the future of the BBC. Do you want to just expand on that point? So, yeah. So, I think the first thing to say is I think the chances of the Andrew Neil interviews, or you know, equivalent, happening in the next general election are pretty low because, like, if if you've worked, if you've basically worked out that they're no longer a necessity in a campaign. No one's going to do them because Jeremy Corbyn has proven how unpleasant they can be, and and even you know Nicola Sturgeon's interview, even if it went well, you know it was still tough. It's still yeah. I wouldn't, than... say, I wouldn't say it went well. She survived it. Yeah, exactly. And no, no very, very you basically net you that's the best you can really hope for with an Andrew Neil interview. You don't kind of come out like going ah that was brilliant. Um, it, it just felt like it's been feeling like a necessity in the last few elections. Boris Johnson has shown it isn't a necessity. Uh, therefore, they won't happen next time. But we are in a really... The problem, like, the thing I fear for for the BBC is we have two political parties who basically treat our national broadcaster with a degree of contempt. Now, and there, and there's, there's this... Pro- the problem is that, you know, any kind of tough questioning now is seen as, you know, basically betrayal by the partisans on either side of the party. And the problem is that in both political parties... The partisans are now the ones right at the top. There, there, there seems to have been a breakdown of an understanding of what the BBC's role is, which is in many ways to be our national living room. It's where we all, you know, it's where everyone gets the same chance to sort of, you know, the same chance to have a voice. Now, I'm being overly idealistic about the BBC. That is a weakness I have. Um, but, like, I worry that if, when charter renewal comes up, we have a Conservative Party that has threatened... Channel 4 over there, slightly silly, but let's be clear, quite funny stunt of replacing the Prime Minister with an ice sculpture, um, and a, a, a Labour Party who, you're right, has, if they get into power, they have partisans who are likely to call the BBC unacceptable and call for it to be closed down, and I don't trust the, leaders, the senior figures in the Labour Party to actually not to not go, yes, we agree, the BBC is, you know, bad and you should only really read your, get your news from the canary. And that's what, I, 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 the BBC, if, the, if nobody fights for the BBC, it will wither and die. It will wither and die because, you know, we'll say, oh, we're going to cut the licence fee and it's going to have to do this and that, and then suddenly you discover the only thing the BBC can do are, doc, are art documentaries presented by Andrew Graham Dixon. And as much as I would like a BBC that does the things I really want, like more art documentaries by Andrew Graham Dixon, that doesn't make it a useful and valid and valuable national broadcaster. So I agree I, with every single word of that. So I've got a few interesting points in this, if I say so myself. 
So first of all, to me, I thought the first sign of the Corbynites' contempt for the BBC was when they said they're going to create a was it a British Digital Corporation? Was that what, what yeah. they called it? To kind of do a lot of the new media stuff they wanted to do. Where I was like, well, well, why not just get the BBC to do this? That's like the obvious place to put it. We've got a proven model, proven brand. BBC website is one of the greatest website ever, even though you had the uh, coalitions not entirely uh, misplaced, uh, not entirely from the wrong motives, but I thought misguided uh, like restrictions and slashing of uh, BBC Online. Why not get them BBC to do this? Like there is an argument, a strong argument that with uh, the the advancements of digital pr- publishing, we now have the possibility of actually using the license fee to do things like long form journalism. Because actually now so much of the costs are no longer kind of bound in the distribution method, which was always prohibited beforehand. Like we, you could have the license fee paying people to do like ten thousand word popular histories or something and they're just available for people to read through their computers it would be fantastic so that's the first one. i thought that was a kind of straw in the wind of what simon's talking about i do think there is both an issue with the current climate that is hurting the bbc there's an issue with elections that's hurting the bbc and there's there's then an issue of bbc incompetence the issue with the climate is i can't remember who explained this to me um, it, was, it was some book I read, but like someone said, like the thing with the BBC, I think it actually may have been Tony Benn in Tony Benn's diaries. The BBC kind of its its comfort zone is when there's like a clearly defined centre ground that the Tories and the Labour are kind of engaged, and the Liberals are engaging in hand to hand combat, and they w- report politics from inside that centre zone. Um, because that means that there's like a, a set of clear assumptions that all the major parties accept. And so it's not partisan if the BBC uses those assumptions as its ideological framework. What is happening at the moment is the, the parties aren't engaging in hand-to-hand combat. They're basically doing the equivalent of a First World War artillery uh, artillery barrage. They are both hunkered down in their trenches and they are just lobbying cannon fodder across the centre ground. The Tories, even though they're trying to pretend they're moderate at the moment, the Tories with their Brexit policy, with some of the kind of uh, mood music they play, are remarkably right-wing compared to what had been conceivable in 2015. The Labour Party is way to the right, left of anything we thought was possible um, in 2015. They've, to be honest, they're way to the left of what we thought was possible in 2017. And so the BBC is there, and there are just no common assumptions for it to build the ideological framework of its analysis... And so it just keeps pissing people off. And I'll do the floor of the BBC. One of the issues with BBC is they, they, they want to be too opinionated. I think if the BBC downplayed horse race coverage, if it downplayed kind of uh, arm, armchair um, quarterbacking, actually focus more on the nuts and bolts and facts it wouldn't keep getting into these highly 
partisan political arguments. Because basically the issue is they keep having Lauren Coonsberg. It's not her fault. It's what she's being told to do by her producers. They keep having Lauren Coonsberg come on and say, Jerry Corbyn was a bit shit tonight, wasn't he? Boris Johnson, he's lying to get people's votes. And it's like, maybe I'm idealising what the BBC did in the 90s and early noughties. I don't remember the BBC doing this. Um, until, yeah. I think until, until Andrew Neil, I think Andrew Marr becoming a political editor um, because he'd been like an editor and an opinion columnist, whereas previous guys he got from journalism had more been reporters. I think he was the first to kind of bring in that kind of editorialising. And then when Robert Peston became like a superstar during a financial crisis, the was like, OK, here's how we get viewing figures for our news. We get a charismatic uh, political editor or economics editor who just kind of gives the politicians gradings about how well they're doing. And the problem that is, is that, that you, you get, you drag yourself into partisan arguments and you're not informing anybody. You're not informing people about the stakes of the issue, about the stakes in the election. You're informing people about the issues. Like, it's obviously, the craziness has died down now. But as a Brexiteer, it was striking that when I'd go to family events, once when I was sitting in a pub, you would talk to, when I was, sometimes when I'm out of work, you'd talk to people who are Brexiteers. And you would, like, calmly explain the issues with the Irish border. And they knew none of it. And these weren't dumb people. They, they weren't disengaged people. These were people who were watching the BBC News. But the BBC wasn't interested in reporting that. They were interested in reporting BBC, uh, Theresa May, yay or nay. Yeah. So I think that's an issue to the BBC. The, the... I, agree, I agree with everything you've said. And I think, the pro- I think you're, you're right. To sort of... I don't dislike Laura Koonsberg. I know it's popular to... No, I don't either. I don't either. No, 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 I didn't say... Sorry, I wasn't meaning you did. I I was simply saying, like, it is very popular to dump on her these days. I believe you can't pretend... You can't claim to be a sort of the Labour Party if you also quite like the political entry of the BBC. But I think one of the other problems they have are things like Brexit Cast. Now, Brexit Cast is, is a good listen, and it is very, very successful. Um... But what it does is that it kind is it it, it offers more opportunity. It, it it just expands more opportunities to make it feel like that these are the personal opinions of BBC journalists. And the problem the problem in Britain is that the if you're a political if you're a political reporter, the BBC is the place you want to go. It's the it's got the biggest audience. It's got the biggest budget, and it's got the biggest prestige. But so but if you spend five or six years you know, as, I don't know, political editor of The Guardian or The Telegraph or The Times, being, you know, partisan and, and offering your opinion, and then basically told to switch that bit of your brain off, you know, that, that's a very hard thing to do. And, like, although you know, my limited experience of knowing BBC journalists, they are of a certain mould of person, and sometimes they're very good at switching that, that partisanship off, but sometimes it gets through. And I don't know how you do it, and you still because British journalism is more mud throwing than it's been, you know, more kind of partisan, more in the trenches it's been, and how you can kind of take the BBC away from that. But again, it might be to, again, I can't come in. That's wrong. Like British British journalism is not more in the trenches than it used to be. We're not America. Like, there has been no great polarisation of our newspaper press. Our newspaper press has always been polarised and has always been bomb-throwing. 
Um, and you know, if if you had a, like an increase of that, increase of that polarization, it would be the emergence of the sun as like a mass market uh, right wing rival to the uh, to the mirror. Um, to me, the issue is, is the BBC used to have the self confidence to say we don't do that, and now they don't. And to me, I, I, I've only listened to bits of Brexit cast in passing, but I kind of agree. Uh, with what Stephen Bush has said, um, which is that's the type of stuff the BBC BBC should be leaving to independent broadcasters, independent publications. That is not their role. Of course, Stephen Bush knows that one of the reasons for that is that they are a direct competitor of the ex-Statesman well, podcast. And, 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 he said, and to be fair, he said that explicitly. Like He said, like, yeah, there's motivated reason and stuff like that. But surely the fact that the BBC is a direct rival to small independent publications is, is another reason for them to think carefully about what they do. And I thought, what, what do we gain by the BBC having Brexit cast? Like... So, okay. So, just... So, I think you've... I think you've You've done a very good job of describing what it is you're against, Well, I'm a little hazier on what it is you're for. Well, okay, I've got something about the election, but I'll come to that in a second. To me, with the, the issue that has always been the BBC, they have treated Brexit as a political story. Whereas what you should have is an attempt to make it a policy story and to actually explain the things that are going on. So there should be a much bigger emphasis of having their, they, they have a, such a deep roster of experts. Why not have your agricultural editor? But how do you make that into compelling television? Well, that's their job, not mine. And the whole point of the license fee is they don't have to chase ratings in the way that other but, broadcasters but, have but, to. But as and but national broadcast. Yes, they don't have to chase ratings, but they're only going to survive as a national broadcaster if people watch their output. Yeah, but but since but when did the news side of the BBC be the Punch and Judy show that kept the circus running? Like it, like that's why they do Doctor Who. That's why they do big set piece dramas. That's why they have sports rights. Like again, like I don't know because like that'd be stuff I'm interested in. But to me, again, using um, their political reporters to do highly opinionated journalism is hurting them. And it, no, if you get an extra half a million, a million viewers for the 6 o'clock or the 10 o'clock news, is that worth the kind of damage they are doing to their reputation? I don't think you would. I think a lot of a lot of people watch the six or the ten almost as a habit. You know, you've watched the you've watched I'm a Celebrity on on ITV. I'm going to go to bed in half an hour. Oh yeah, I just stick the news on. And if the news is being you know more policy driven and more useful, some stuff will go in. Not you know. I I I I, I, I actually don't think you would do a huge damage to the BBC's yeah. ratings. I don't think going back to the I'm not disagreeing with anything either of you guys have said. I just think this is a solving I, this is a thornier problem. The, the, solving this is harder than identifying. The, the other thing yeah. I I personally would do is I would make more use of 
of external journalists. One, because it's a nice way of kind of helping journalists kind of counteracting the issue Simon was talking about. But two, then you can do person, impartial journalists talking about the issues at hand throw to... No, Stephen Bush of the New Statesman. Yeah, like Steve, Stephen Bush has done that role on Newsnight. Fraser Nelson of The Spectator. Let, let those two put across the right-wing, left-wing perspectives and the BBC it stays above the fray. Everyone's happy. Everyone's seen their side represented. Uh, and we, we all go home. Now, because Luke is conscious that we all need to go home, even though we actually are in our homes... Quickly, my final point I was going to make on the BBC before we go on to the YouGov uh, projection is... I'm just a bit conscious this podcast is turning into the audio the audio equivalent of the Irish Well, one. it's still got to go another half an hour before it's the longest podcast I've done this week, and that was a podcast I did by myself. But you're not an egomaniac. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't helping getting it done. Yes, Luke! Get the podcast done. Um, the third point I make is... The BBC should not be in a situation where it's negotiating these big election set pieces. I've thought it for a long time. Maybe it's a electoral commission, maybe it's a standalone body. Yeah, there needs, there needs to be some sort of independent commission. Yeah. In, established in statute, there will be a body that sets down what's going to happen in the election. It will divvy them up between the broadcasters. It will explain how the parties... Um, fill the slots and that is all agreed in advance completely transparent no kind of politic in between the media organisations no arguments about people being empty chaired or not turning up it's all above board and it's set out in black and white because I think no we're now this is the third cycle no fourth cycle where these type of process issues have dominated just I'm not. It's not my usual mo. I don't usually like hiving things off to a quango, but this this is so clearly a, a job for a quango. Anyway, finally to get back, I quite enjoyed that chat about the BBC. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm loving it. I'm just conscious the listeners might be a bit exhausted. I'm tempted to get my rant about people are wrong when they blame the they blame the BBC for not being Netflix, but we'll save that for another time. Another time. Um, Let's talk about the YouGov MRP. Do you just want to explain what MRP is? Well, you're the only like statistician amongst us. Well, I'm, no, Simon, you know about numbers, don't you? Am I misremembering? Yeah, yeah no, I think that was very unfair. Yeah. Um, so the best way to think of it is basically the UK equivalent of the Nate Silver like five thirty eight election model. You basically take a glob of polling data, you cross-reference that with various demographic data to find out how different groups of people are voting and then you make predictions for individual constituencies based on that cross-reference. So you, you, you kind of have an idea of the rough makeup of a constituency, you have a rough idea of how different groups are voting at the national level, you cross-reference the two and that allows you to make predictions. Now what I will say and I think uh, uh, what I will say about this is one the polling they are putting in is obviously uh, national polling. Two, when this has been done, no, the the the, the version you did last time 
when Silver himself has tried to do it for the house um, in America, does not work as well for for constituencies as it does at the national level as it does at the state level. Just because the dem we we have a we don't have as great a grasp on the demographics of parliamentary constituencies because they don't have their, their own government that is producing their own statistics. Like no one is producing statistics for Wolverhampton South uh, West, where I where I live, it is a Wolverhampton City Council that's just gonna do it themselves. So you look at that last YouGov model, which got became famous or infamous because it was the first one to predict there's gonna be a hung parliament. The reason why it got the result right was because the poll, because it was a much bigger poll than normal, got the the gap between Labour and the Tories much narrower than the normal polls were doing. Actually, it was fairly poor at translating that right insight into predicting individual seats properly. So we've got to be careful not to overweight this. That this that 2017 MRP got it right because they they got the margin of toy victory correct, whereas others were still overstating it. This will probably live and die about whether the 11 point gap that, that they have for Labour between toys and Labour is correct. With that proclaim out of the way, here are the scores on the doors. Um, Conservatives are on 43% of the popular vote, um, 359 seats, that translates to majority in the 60s, Labour on 32%, uh, 211, that would be their lowest seat total since 1983, if it was correct. Liberal Democrats on 14%, which, you know, stunning, uh, bounce back from what they got in uh, 2017, Doubling their vote share almost, they would have thirteen seats, which is more, which is plus one uh, from the previous election. Uh, by the way, Simon, where do you stand? Do you take seat totals from the previous election or from dissolution? Um, I always kind of, uh, I think probably dissolution. Like I always, whenever you get them. No, oh. Call yourself a statistician. I side with Luke about your your numerous. Oh, well done, Simon. That was the right answer. <laughs> now, Simon, given your reaction, do you that 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 you that you sided with Luke on a numbers question? Is that making you doubt your answer? <laughs> I I honestly I I I I was I I, I didn't have a I didn't really have an opinion. It was sprung on me. It's it's always Simon, we forgive you. Uh, Brexit party on 3%, no no, no seats. Greens on 3, 1 seat. SP on 3%, 43 seats. Hmm, that's, that's strange. Um, Plaid Cymru on 0%, 4 seats. Other on 1%, 1 seat, which I assume is a speaker. I wish people would stop doing that. The speaker should be counting the Labour total. That's the way it works um, in terms of uh, parliamentary arithmetic. Unless that's one of the ind- weird independents. No, none of the weird independents have got anything. Yeah. And then Northern Ireland is How on 18. I cope without my gates. I mean, you know. 
Well, there's there's one in Ashfield, and there's one in Devon who are like legitimate independents rather than the one in Devon East Clare right. Yeah, that's going to be a seat worth watching. Rather, she she is she is she has racked up vote share in the last two elections. Yeah. yeah. Rather than MPs who won the severance pay, let's be honest. That's why Mike Gapps, Gapes is standing. That's why Anna oh, is standing. But actually, just just I know we're trying to finish up, but it's it's too funny to let pass. Just either of you follow Mike Gapes on Twitter. I did for a while, and then I realised that most that my death was going to happen at some point, and I didn't wish to waste my time. Well. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm an anti-European isolationist. Why on earth would I want to follow my gates? Always want to know what your enemy's thinking. <laughs> uh, my gates is having a mini freakout with Gina Miller's tactical voting website because it's telling people in Ilford South to vote Labour and he is going mental in a very nice very restrained way, but you can tell the guy is really angry at Gina Miller. But isn't, like, Ilford South, like, it's, could me wrong, like, it's not impossible for the Tories to win that if the Remain vote divided. It would be very, very, very difficult. But it's not, yeah. the, ty- it's not the type of seat where you can say, put a, put a, ro- put a red rosette on a monkey, the monkey will be elected, like... No, it was it was it was Tory under Thatcher, but you know so, so, a lot's but, happened in the, but, in the intervening thirty years. But it's the type of seat I, where you would say just vote Labour if you're a Remainer. Don't yeah. don't don't try and get the upgrade. Something weird might happen. But yeah, I just love Mike Gapes losing his temper big time, but in a very polite, restrained, very English way. That's very Mike Gapes. Um, yeah. yeah. So let's talk about this uh, projection. Now it should be said. Um, the the gap is much much bigger than what the polls are showing now. Uh, most of the polls are narrowing. Most of the polls are showing. Uh, um, no, they're not showing eleven point leads for the Tory Party. Like we said, like some polls been released uh, today, they're showing much narrower ones. Do do do. First of all, do we do we think that gap is right? Um, Simon. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I, I don't. I might be wrong, but I, I, I've been feeling pretty negative about this election from a sort of non-conservative perspective throughout it. Um, Eleven is big, but in the end, I, I, I think the likelier outcome is that pe- is that people will shift away from the Labour Party in the um in the in the in the act in the in the final reckoning um rather than shift towards it. Um I think that the Corbyn policies are very much will scare the horses. The polling seems to show that. The focus groups are showing that as well. Um and I just think the chances of him doing something to really alienate people is pretty high. I, I don't know. I mean, I think I think we could, I think there is the po- there is the outside possibility we could be heading for another hung parliament. I don't. And by the way, I still think in that scenario, Boris Johnson is prime minister. I don't see it. Yeah. I don't see a way in which Jeremy Corbyn is the leader of the largest party. But no, hang on, hang on, hang on. That's not the same thing. 
No, so you saying you think Johnson will be the toys will be so large, Corbyn can't cobble together a majority to get rid of Johnson. Yeah, because it will be, it will be something around three eighteen, three nineteen Tory seats. That's effectively a majority. Um, but yeah. So we, yeah, well, once you, once you take out Sinn Fein, that'll be that could be a majority or very very close to it. Yeah. Um. Like, so to me, I think the thing, like, look... By the way, I, 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 my sort of central prediction would be a Tory majority of a... But at the moment, you know, touch wood, nothing else. My central prediction would be a majority of about 25 to 30. Mm. So Certainly like, not a 68. So to me, um, the issue we have is all the pollsters are clearly hurting. Like they yeah, they're like, hedging their bets. Like, it's like, b- before the election was called, you had two schools of four, some saying a huge Tory majority, some saying a small... Uh, 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 sorry, some saying, like, a huge Tory lead, some saying a relatively small Tory lead. And they are now converging on a mediocre Tory lead. And, yeah, that's not helpful. It's very unlikely to be the, the truth. Um... To me, the thing I am struck by is the toys are trying to moderate their message. They are trying to look more moderate. They are they are desperately trying to seal the deal with those Labour leavers. So, you know, Gisela Stewart did a big press conference with Boris Johnson. They did a big announcement on state aid and by British. You know, this this is a type of belts and braces, um, uh, lenders your vote stuff that Theresa May refused to do. You know, the, the whole stuff about cancelling the corporation tax cuts to give more money to the NHS. Like, this is pretty blatant stuff. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and whereas the Labour Party is going f- to the to further extreme. So my gut is... If you have one party that is moderating and you have another party that is actually becoming more wild, more extreme, that the party that is trying to moderate will probably get the rubber of the green and, and the, 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 the bounce of the ball in key, free, no, key marginals. The, 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 yeah, I mean, can I, can I just do my yeah. thing, the thing that I really like about elections, which is to nerd out about individual seats? Because Will do, doesn't do this, and I don't I, understand how. I like individual. I agree. I'm with you. I enjoy. I'm oh, I, 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 you can know that, but can I just make? Um, <laughs> um, I'm down trying to remember my point. No, you, you know that, and I'll come back to my point. Okay. The one thing that the one thing that is very clear from this model is that where the Tories are winning this election, if they do win it, is they are absolutely destroying Labour in in the West Midlands slash South Yorkshire. That's where that that's where they're that's where they're really picking up seats. So you've got them you've got them winning places on this model like Stoke on Trent Central. You've got them winning places like West Bromwich East. You've got them winning places like Keithley, Dewsbury. Um they're also making some big gains in the northeast. So you've got places like Working, uh, Workington. Um, I'm just trying to look at some of the. Yeah, I mean Barrow and Furness. They're winning on a huge swing, by according to this. 
They're winning Wakefield on an almighty swing. So if the Tories do get a majority in the 60s slash 70s, the reason will be is that they are absolutely cleaning Labour's clock in the West Midlands and Yorkshire. Penis, you've got some really odd seats falling here. I mean, it's very close according to this model, but you've got the Tories winning Lee. Labour won that by 20 points last election. This is what I would say the health check is. That this, model, this, model, this model got the headline result right last time. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. not great at individual constituencies. What constituencies would you like to know out about, Simon? Oh, um... Do you want me, do you want me to I, say my I, point and give you a second to think? Um, so can I, can I just mention, um, can, can I mention one that, bizarrely, I happen to know the Conservative candidate okay. um, who may end up being an MP because he is a quizzer, bizarrely, uh, which is Alan and D-side. Um, the Conservative candidate is a gentleman called Sanjoy Sen, who has... He's very, 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 he's, very close. I mean, very yeah. close. That's what, that's what that's what the model says, is that, you know, um, he stands a decent... He didn't stand in 2017. He stood in, I think, one of the Aberdeenshire seats in 2015. So, you know, sacrificial lambs have a value. Um, but that would be, you know, that's a, that is, a I think, feels plausible just because, like, the Conservatives did do relatively well in Wales at the sort of high point of their power in the 80s. Um, so that one, I think that feels right. I think the fact the lack of success for the Liberal Democrats is is obviously not going to give them. And I know they've done very well in terms of vote share if they've they doubled their vote share, but it yeah, it's I mean, not been good. Just to go over, just to go over, because the Lib Dems do actually gain a, a number of seats, but they also lose. They also yeah. lose quite a few. So they gain in St Albans, Richmond Park, Sheffield, Harlem. And Cheltenham, but they lose um, Eastbourne, they lose Norfolk North, and this model has got them losing um, Caithness, Sutherland and Easter Ross, which I don't buy. I, I just don't see that happening. Well, to me, um, like, I think the thing you have the Lib Dems is there is this, they were, they got away with retained last seats in the South west that given the, the remain leave profile they shouldn't have really retained and that again they have moved further no they have kind of rather than compromise the electorate they have moved further away from the electorates on that issue so you would expect them to lose those seats I do oh, think Norfolk North and um, well yeah yeah but I'm doing like things born, aren't in the southwest is this, I no, North, North is a Brexit seat, and, yeah. and Norman Lamb is no longer the candidate. I'm yeah. not surprised they're losing that yeah. one. Yeah. Um, but the thing I would say, like if the Lib Dems kind of wed themselves in to affluent parts of big cities, I think for them to be a genuine force for liberalism, that's a better base than the old Celtic fringes. Like I think if they can really become the party of the part of every city that, that people who work at universities live in, that that will be... I think that will be a good long-term trade for the Lib Dems. I mean, the other thing with the Lib Dems is um, you always have to look at how many good second places they're getting because the thing that made 2017 such a disaster 
was they hardly got any strong second places. They had no real good intel on where their their target seats were. They were just marooned. With a few exceptions, Richmond is obviously one, but they were just marooned, miles off the pace, everywhere else. And so, like, if the Lib Dems got, say, 20 seats and 50 really strong second places, that'd be a good night's work. And, and again, just to go back to what we are talking about, the reason why it is stupid, sorry guys, um, to to go from dissolution rather than the last election is because dissolution is about the stuff that's happened in Parliament in the in between the two elections. But if you're actually trying to measure how the voters have changed from the last election, you have to compare like and like. You have to compare one election mm-hmm. with the other election. And this always used to be the way it was done. I remember, because I was obviously, the first election I stayed up to watch was in 97. There had been a lot of defections um, in the preceding five years, uh, a lot of by-elections as well. The BBC still used uh, the previous election results because you're trying to track change from election to election. Now, has, has the Lib Dem vote gone up in a constituency? Well, the baseline should be the fact that that constituency elected a Tory or a Labour MP the last time, not the fact that due to various defections, it now has a Lib Dem MP, uh, regardless of what the voters wanted. I think there's two different... I mean... I think, and I think you're. I think I may have changed your mind. You may have, may have. Yes. Because, because um, I was going to say there are two different types of um, changes in Parliament. One is like defections, like Shuka Ramuna or um, various other people who I who slipped my mind for the sec for a second, um, who have moved of their own mind. And then there is the voting in a by-election, which, I mean, in that part, that 1997 election, there were so many seats where it was like, well, this voted Conservative in 1992, but obviously then, you know, massive swing in the by-election. But of course, by-elections have much lower turnouts than general elections do. Yes, and differential turnouts as well. It's, it's not just, it's a random sample and it's just smaller, but it's the same people. Different, the, the people who vote in by-elections are disproportionate to various groups. Um, the, 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 the one thing I want to say about Corbyn, which is why I buy... I don't buy Labour getting to 36, 37, 38% this time. Um, because I think the negative stuff about Corbyn has hit much more than in the previous election. And the example I'll give you, so um, anyone who follows my, my Twitter knows I'm... Uh, my Twitter is basically divided between Brexit and wrestling and um, that's the two things i talk about on my twitter and um uh there's uh, I, i've got i've got friends who do the grapple spotlight podcast which is a wrestling podcast but they talk about other things and i was talking to one of their co-hosts and he he teaches in a fe college and you've got mm. college students who are bringing up isn't jamie corbyn a terrorist isn't jamie corbyn an anti-semite yeah. like they're bringing it up to him and like this guy's like he's a left wing guy he's gonna vote Labour. That guy is stunned that this stuff is like reaching them. And if it's reaching them and they aren't dismissing it, they're like, yeah, that sounds like it might you might be true. What are the Ulsters thinking? What are you middle aged people thinking about him? Just to just to do my cor- my Scottish correspondent bit. The other thing that strikes me very much about this model 
is it only at although the SNP is up, it is up largely at the expense of the Labour Party. Which, by the way, Luke, isn't that what I predicted when we did the, did one of these podcasts at the beginning of the campaign? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, but the the two Tory losses, the the two Tory losses are highlights are Stirling and East Renfrewshire, and this model has Tories. Within striking distance of retaining both seats. Now, I will say this: I cannot see. Um, I struggle to see a world in which the SNP get East Renfrewshire back because East Renfrewshire basically is the Jewish community in Scotland. It is because it sounds very rural, but basically, what it is as a seat is suburban and exurban Glasgow. And it has, for a long time, had a very large Jewish community. It's about 15% of the electorate in that scene. Uh, you know, they have, because uh, I follow the, the former Tory MP Paul Masterson on um, Twitter, and he's been going to he's been going to campaign event after campaign event in synagogues. Um, so I can't. I find it. The, the, the model has the SNP winning by less than 1%. I find it really hard to believe they're going to win that seat, given that they might be propping up Jeremy Corbyn. What do you and think likewise, so? it has the same for Sterling as well. Um, and that's like the closest Tory seat to me. I do. Now, I'm not currently a member of the Scottish Tories, but I was, and I'm still on their mailing list. Why have you told you, Luke? Why have you left? I'm lazy. But but surely it requires effort to leave a critical party? I know, I just didn't renew my membership. Why did you... Sorry, sorry Luke, because like, I've never officially been a member of the party. Why did you need to renew your membership? Alright, maybe I am still a member, but... No, no, that, but isn't it just a direct debit? Uh, I'm not taking money out of my bank account anymore, so... Yeah, because because like yeah, cause like for me, like I had to actually like the two times I cancelled my Labour membership, I've had to actively cancel my membership. Anyway, the point. Anyway, the point is, um, times, I'm still actually. on the mailing list, and they are moving heaven and earth to get volunteers and cash to Stephen Kerr, who's the the candidate former MP for Stirling. So if he goes down, he will have gone down putting up one hell of a fight. Mm. Um, so it, 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 and this actually speaks to to um, Boris Johnson's chance of getting a decent um, overall majority again what little Scottish polling there has been has been quite contradictory because panel base basic panel base um, basically had agrees with this model um, and the other polling, I think, was ICM, but I could be wrong, had the SNP much further ahead. Yeah, they were like 48-49, wasn't it? Yeah, and the Tories losing like 7 out of 13 seats. Oh, no, I don't think it was that much. I think they were up, They were on like 9. Okay. So, this is going to make a real difference, I think, about the, whether Boris Johnson can get a majority or, and what size it will be. I mean... So just on the Tories, like the thing I don't know, I don't know what you guys think, and this is a very nerdy point, is is how to factor in the Brexit party. 
Because on the one hand, I can, I can see the argument that you almost deduct three, maybe 4% of the of the Toy Party's vote share because that's just like a supermajority they're getting in the seats they already hold um, because the Brexit Party's not standing against them. But on the other hand, I can think of, well, well hang on, that means the Brexit Party's vote is concentrated in very Labour leave seats they're probably primarily attracting people who really want Brexit but would rather uh, dip their own testicles in acid produced in the EU than vote Tory. So that will probably help the Tories win seats in Labour Leave areas because you're basically getting like turbocharged tactical voting. So basically, I don't know whether... You should expect the Tory party's vote share to be on you to be better distributed than last time, or worse distributed than last time. Because just based on what the Brexit party is doing, I can see arguments either way. Because it should be said, like again, just to clarify this, that Brexit party three percent, that is like the equivalent of them polled like six, seven, eight percent nationally if they were standing in those three hundred and eighteen Tory party constituencies. Yeah, the the short answer is I have no idea. Um, I think either I think either I think either scenario is eminently plausible. That's going to be one of the things we find out on the on December the thirteenth. I mean, it could be both, and that's and that's and that's the scenario that gives you like a 10, 20, 30 seat toy majority. I mean, my gut instinct is you either get um, the four scenarios are the Tories are marooned in like three hundred, and we get a massive bun fight about who's going to be prime minister. That probably probably isn't resolved before Christmas. Um, you might actually have like nineteen uh, the nineteen twenty three election, the last December election, the the outgoing government actually chances his arm of trying to pass a Queen's speech and see see well it been King's speech then, and sees what happens. Yeah, you get the Tories closer to the majority where they're clearly going to be in government. And it then becomes, uh, Caroline Flynn, do you really want to chance your arm again with an election um, when Brexit's on the ballot? And also a Tory parliamentary party that is much more Brexiting. Yeah. I, thing, like, I don't know, um, don't, don't go in detail, but like Ed Davey talking about it's going to be a Tory, it's going to be a Tory minority government and then we'll negotiate to get a second referendum. It's like, who with? Like, seriously, you're not yeah, paying attention. All the, Tor- all the Tories that would entertain that are, are, going, to, are going to have lost their seats. Um, a Tory majority in the 20s or 30s, like a very small Tory majority, but no, large by uh, recent standards, or a thumping 100-seat majority. Ironically, the one thing that, in my gut, I don't see happening is this where you get like a 60, 70 seat Tory majority? I just think either the polls are wrong enough where the Tories are struggling to get a majority or they're wrong enough where the Tories just kind of have a blowout and they ring every bounce of the ball and we, we, we all welcome our Johnsonian overlords. What are your guys' perspectives? Simon first. Uh, I'm Sorry. No, no, it's all right. Luke actually sounds like has an opinion, whereas I'm I'm still trying to calculate and cogitate. So, Luke, I will I will go for the if 
I had to put money on it right now, I'm going to go for a conservative majority of between 25 and 35. So I'm more pessimistic. I've been saying this since the start of the campaign. Conservative majority of 58. Not That number was basically... That's very exact. It is very exact. I don't know why I started with, like... This is this, you know, I don't know why I started with such an exact number, but for some reason that number has bounced around in my head and I've seen nothing in this campaign that's made me think that Labour are going to do much better than that. I haven't done this by, you know, producing modelling. It was literally a number I pulled out of my brain. But, you know, I'm going to put good, I'm going to put mediocre money after bad and stick with it. See, I'm, I'm, I'm gun shy because of how badly I predicted the last election. Um... Yeah, I remember your prediction. Yes. Like five minutes before Um, But I think thumping toy majority, because I just think, again, their opponents have moved away from the centre. They have moved to it. And they are no longer punching old people in the face. But I think that would be right, Will. Were Boris Johnson not a complete cad? Yes, if you put this campaign to, um, we're going to reference them again. Stephen Bush, uh, Stephen Bush has made this point of the Tory Party may ha- Tory Party may have a better campaign but a worse product. Theresa may run a bad campaign, but actually as a product, she was very good. She did not come across as posh to middle class people like other people. No, but she did come across as deeply weird. But that's because of the bad campaign. Like they exposed that. But to begin Boris with, Johnson seems really normal. <laughs> no, I'm saying that. I'm saying that, that. No, if anything, Simon, I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying Boris Johnson is weirder. Mm. But yeah, I, th- I think I, this is the thing. If I'm working in CCHQ, I'm happy with the campaign I'm running. I don't see that there's much more I can do as a as a. I, I, either in terms of strategy, in terms of air war, in terms I of ground do. war, in terms of fundraising. I, I can, can I give you one thing? The fundamental thing that's handicapping me, handicapping me is I don't have a good candidate. I I think he's been best in this election. I think he's been much better in this election than he was in the toy leadership election. Like, he, he is hamstrung because he, he's he's gone from Heineken to Marmite. Um, mm. And it doesn't suit his style. But I think I think he's been back on his game. And I remember talking to you, Luke, about when he did the um, he quoted um, was it Dizzy Rascal at the dispatch box or something. And since then, like he's he's, he's I think Johnson's got his mojo back. Um, I was watching him do a uh, be doorstep by BBC talking about the terrorist attack actually, Luke. And again, like he was doing like I'm I'm being prime ministerial, prime ministerial pivot to political point. Pivot to political point. Like I, I think Johnson's done pretty well this campaign. DDD. Pivot. Pivot. Um, the point I would make um, uh, with the Tories is um, is that there's still. Oh, this is saying this like a mid sixties Tory majority. There's still a lot of Lib Dem vote to squeeze. And the question will be, can La- can Labour squeeze that vote down? 
um, uh, and get that vote. Like we assumed that when the Lib Dems stop voting for uh, uh, Lib Dem, they're going to go to Labour. May not necessarily be true, but yeah, if Labour can squeeze that vote, get more Remainers voting for Dem, maybe they make it close. But that that is that is the whole ball game at the moment. Can Labour get more Lib Dems to vote for them than vote for the Lib Dem or for the Tory Party? Any final thoughts before we end this mammoth podcast? No, I think I think that's been it's been very comprehensive. Well, um, you've, beat, you've, beat, you've beaten me into submission. Well. <laughs> and on that bombshell, I've been more calling. He's been Luke Middup. He's been Simon Alvey. We will talk to you again in a while.